You're listening to Video Monsters, a weekly podcast. Uh, well, uh, mostly weekly. Sometimes more, sometimes less. <sighs> All right, fine. A mostly weekly podcast of Creatures Talking Features with your hosts, Nathan Simmons and Eric Harris. Video Monsters is brought to you by the Chattanooga Film Festival and Central Cinema in Knoxville, Tennessee. Follow them on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or online at chatfilmfest.org and centralcinema865.com. And links for each of these can also be found on our pages, so be sure to follow us at Video Monster Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well. Hello and welcome to Video Monsters, where we take movies seriously, but not ourselves. I'm Nathan. And I'm Eric. <laughs> and uh, we are continuing on with our decades episodes, our, uh, our our history of cinema. Is that what I've been calling it? God, I don't even remember what I've been saying. Something like that. Yeah, history of cinema, our, uh, our attempt to purge some of our blind spots and uh, enrich our knowledge of the history of cinema and all that good stuff our attempt to take on our attempt to take on a year-long theme because uh just doing month themes apparently isn't enough for us where we also want to have an overarching thing that we have to do that we really always just want to like have ambition that is constantly in excess of our grasp basically (laughs) constantly trying to push ourselves I, I think that it's just that, More than like, we should. like, I'm such a geek that I can't just watch a movie and talk about a movie because of, you know, the movie. It's always, ooh, what theme can we make it? So, right. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, so we're continuing on with our history of cinema. And because it is now May, uh, obviously, we're talking about the movies that we watched in April, because that was our intention. And we're going to be talking about movies that we watched from the 1940s. Mm. And same disclaimer that we've given on the episodes that we remember to say this on. This is not a comprehensive, like every single movie from the 40s. It is not a uh, best of list. It is not a must see list. This is just a eh. These are the things that we watched and uh, some some thoughts that we have about, <coughs> excuse me, the movie specifically and some of the larger overarching themes uh, that we saw within them. Um, yeah, before we get into that, we should mention, speaking of movies and how great they are, that the Chattanooga Film Festival is going to be coming up soon. It's just going to look completely different from the way that it has in the past (laughs) Mm. (laughs) because of, you know, this whole global pandemic thing and not actually being able to be around people. uh, Chat Film Fest is going to a digital format, which I'm I'm very excited about and very curious as to how some of the stuff is going to work. But uh, but yeah, Chat Film Fest, uh, I'm I'm just going to read this from the website so that uh, for one, I can make sure to say all of the people that need to be said. Um, but also letting people know that I'm just straight up reading it from the website. These are not my words. <laughs> the Chattanooga Film Festival has been offered an exciting opportunity to work with Microsoft and its partners, MediaKind, Evergent, VisualOn, and Slalom to present a full four-day interactive virtual version of the physical festival targeted for mid-May. Uh, the festival's feature and short films <clears throat> excuse me the festival's feature and short films will be streamed through mediakind's media first tv platform hosted on azure 
films will only be accessible during the festival's four days, and there will be live events uh, using Microsoft Teams, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, there's going to be a virtual film festival, which I am super excited about. And, and I still have questions, you know, like I, I want to know if, uh, if the movies are only going to screen during certain times. Um, and if I'm still going to have that same hell of trying to figure out what my schedule is going to be, because it, <laughs> it seems, it, it, this one looks, it seems interesting. Cause you know, this is not Chattanooga film fest is obviously not the first film festival to do this. Like South by Southwest just recently, um, premiered some films on Amazon, but I think the way that theirs was set up was basically like you hear the movies, you can watch them whenever you want during this ten day window. Right. But the way that the chat, this chat film fest one is set up is it's talking about how they're going to be live Q and As uh, or post film Q and As panels, live events. Like it sounds like it is literally trying to replicate the film festival experience from home. Um, which is kind of fascinating. I really like this idea in some way. Like, I almost wish that. I wonder if there's. You could even do it like as a virtual reality. <laughs> so, like, if you had to be, <laughs> like, it'd be just like being there. Just, um, just like walk around. Just hey, I see you in the virtual space. Um, yeah, you can create an avatar and all that good stuff. Like, it'd be just like real life. Exactly. Yeah. The thing that I'm most <laughs> curious about with all of that is whether or not it's going to be kind of like the South by Southwest, where it's just these are when the films are available uh, or if it is following a strict schedule of these are when the specific films are playing because mm. it, as anxiety producing as it is to go through the, uh, the list of films and try to come up with a schedule of what are we going to watch and when and where and how, and what films do we have to miss? What films can we catch part of? I, I kind of love it. You know, like, like you get kind of get yeah. that. That's always the pre CFF rush for me is, working on the schedule and that is like that last big push of oh shit this thing's happening in like two days i need to get this worked out mm-hmm. and and i don't know if i'm gonna have that same rush this time i part of me is gonna miss it if that's the case part of me will also be so much happier if i can actually watch all of the films be relieved yeah <laughs> but i'm still not gonna and you at the at the very least, you will get to because since there will be certain live events, you will get at least part of that experience with some of those events. I'm not sure how it'll be with all of the movies, but um, I don't know. I, I like the idea of it being kind of a mixture of both. Like yeah. that maybe there will be movies that are just kind of out there, and you can uh, stream them whenever you want during that four day window. Um, but then you also have live events to look forward to during certain times. Well, and that's the thing that I always love the most about CFF because, uh, and like we talked about this last year. Yeah. Cause last year was the first year that uh, you were able to make it, uh, on our pre FF coverage that we yeah. did <clears throat> where like we talked about, these are the movies that are available online. Cause <laughs> those were the ones that you were able to watch. Um, you know, most of the movies that do go through the Chat Film Fest do eventually make it onto some sort of streaming platform. Most of the movies in any film fest eventually are going to make it into wider distribution uh, and be on some streaming platform so that lots of people can actually see them. Um, and, and so, like, that's always part of what ends up making my decision of which films are we going to see or which films am I going to see at least which ones have someone there who's going to be talking about them, which ones uh, will have the director in attendance that I can potentially talk to them afterwards. Like which of the movies are going to have something that are going to make the experience a once in a lifetime experience rather than just watching the movie earlier than I would have otherwise. 
Right. And and so by having those live events, by having those Q&As, by having those other aspects to make it like an actual film fest rather than just a you know a massive media dump of new movies, like right. that's the thing that I feel like yeah, CFF is definitely doing it right by um by by doing the best they can to um to bring that atmosphere online. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. I think it's. I think if if we can't be there in person, then this is the next best thing for sure. Yeah, and I mean, we got every single time that we talk about CFF, we talk about you know the camaraderie of being able to talk to people and like the movies are awesome, but talking to people about the movies like that's where a lot of that energy comes from and et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So yeah, very, very, very much looking forward to uh, to seeing how all this pans out. So yeah. They, there is our CFF announcement before we dive into talking about other movies. What? What? Yeah. What? <laughs> I, I hate that that has become a thing. By the way, it, it is now. It's an official like part <laughs> of the podcast. Now it is canon. <laughs> I hate it. You right. made such a big deal of it. So let's talk about the movies that we saw. Um, <clears throat> So I watched, uh, let's see, and part, again, part of the reason that we're doing these decades episodes um, is, that, again, like Eric mentioned, the fact that there's a lot of movies that we just haven't seen. And, you know, mm. we love movies and we want to fill in those gaps. But including the epi- episodes, including the movies that I watched specifically this month leading up to this episode, I've only seen 4, 8, 12, 16, 18 movies from the 40s. And one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Uh, eight of those I had never seen before. So almost half okay. of the uh, movies from the 40s I've watched, almost half of the movies from the 40s that I have seen, I've watched in the last month. Nice. Yeah, mine's pretty similar. I had seen 10 movies from the decade previously before the month of April um, and I watched 11 but three of those were rewatches which kind of disappoints me that I rewatched three movies because <laughs> it, I, there were a few other movies on my longer list that I really wanted to try and uh, get in before we recorded but I also feel like there's a if I watch too many movies then this part then this episode becomes a bit too unwieldy <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> way too much um and also those three movies that i rewatched are incredible movies and i don't regret rewatching them at all because well they're great if it makes you feel any better um i watched the wolfman twice in the last month and a half or so <laughs> yeah, <you laughs> because when i was uh binging all of the 30s movies uh and getting through all of the universal monsters or at least that initial run of the universal monster movies um i I, I I was just just on a binge, and so I started Wolfman, and it wasn't until a ways into the movie that I was like, "Oh wait, crap! This is from the '40s, <laughs> not the '30s." This. And Sorry, rather man. than just stopping it there, I just finished it, and so then you know a few weeks later, when I was like, "Oh crap! I need to watch my movies <laughs> for the '40s episode. I need to start with the Wolfman because you know, like that's that's where I left off." I got about to the same point, about you know three fifths of the way through it, and I was like wait i finished this last time that i started it 
Oh well, guess I'm watching it twice. Guess you gotta finish it, yeah. It's a good movie. I like it. It's fantastic. It's definitely like I say this almost every time we talk about a Universal monster movie, but it is one of my favorites. Like I really was kind of blown away by Wolfman the first time I watched it, which was actually just this past October of 2019 was the first time I had seen it. It is definitely a great Universal monster movie. It is not the worst, but it is definitely not the best either. It's a. Uh, it's. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's, it's kind of in the middle, I would say, um, now that I've seen more of them <laughs> after last, <laughs> last month. Um, but it does make, well, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but I did watch Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein for this episode, and Lon Chaney's role as the Wolfman, and... Um, I think that watching the original Wolfman movie before Evan Costello lends so much more like gravitas to his performance in Evan and Costello, which is fascinating because it's such a goofy movie, but he is like kind of where most of the emotion comes from in that movie. Oh, we're going to probably spend a, a hefty chunk of time talking about Abbott and, uh, yeah, Abbott and Costello meets um, Frankenstein because I watched five Wolfman movies because that's one of the only like <laughs> universal collections that I have. <laughs> but yeah, I watched uh, The Wolfman, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, Frankenstein meets The Wolfman, House of Frankenstein and House of Dracula. And I've I've got I've got thoughts, but since we spent the vast majority of, Man, they are okay. Some of them are great. Some of them <laughs> are just I I got I got thoughts. Got lots of thoughts. Heard- House of Frankenstein is actually where uh, most of the uh, Frankenstein lore that we recognize in popular culture today comes from. Like that's where Igor comes from, and right. It's so like here's the weird thing, um, and you know what? Let's let's save some of our universal monsters. Sorry, I know I do. Well, this. no, it's it's caused like since I spent pretty much the entire episode of the 30s talking just about universal monsters because because I love them. Uh, I don't want to start there because if we start running low on time I've, I've already talked plenty about universal monsters yeah. so we, we might save that one towards the end just in terms of a uh, a pseudo palate cleanser to kind of end off oh, for sure yeah yeah surprisingly the monster movie that we watched is, or at least the one that i watched and the uh the many that you watched are probably the most fun movies of this air er- of this decade um Yes, on on my list of movies that I've seen, um, actually, you know, well, yes, probably. Other than maybe the outlaw, the outlaw was great. That one was a lot of fun. Um, one of the ones that I meant to rewatch leading up to this, but I I didn't because I just ran out of time. Was Arsenic and Old Lace, and oh yeah, I've never seen that one. Oh man, it's so much fun. It's two little old ladies trying to murder people. <laughs> it's so <laughs> it's great. Got Cary Grant in it, yes. right? Yeah, and uh, and Peter Lorre, <laughs> um, the little oh, Peter Lorre's in it. I didn't know that. Yeah, I I love it so much. It has been years and years and years since I've seen it, but I still remember thinking that the movie is just hilarious. And uh, I I have it right. Where was it? No, oh, it moved on me. I have it on VHS, sitting next to other movies that I plan to be watching in the near future. <laughs> all right so how about this let's just let's just kick it in nathan a few about an hour ago or so yes. you saw a sled burning in a furnace yes for the very first time yes i need to know what you think about 
the quote-unquote greatest movie ever made. Because just to, just to give a little background on this, I at one point literally offered to pay you money <laughs> to watch this movie because you were taking me for a ride, making me think that you were not going to watch Citizen Kane. Yeah. And not did you watch it, but you watched it on VHS. <laughs> For those of you at home, Nathan is holding his VHS copy of Citizen Kane out to his computer monitor. Yep. So that's amazing. Uh, it's the uh, uncut original of this great American classic put out nice. by VidAmerica Inc. Nice. Yeah. So yeah, it's Citizen Kane, man. <clears throat> you have so, finally seen the greatest movie ever made, right? I have finally seen the greatest movie ever made. Uh, it was a few weeks ago when I watched the 1998 version of Godzilla. And <laughs> Roland Emmerich is a genius. Um, he he just he gets what American audiences want, and they they are just fun. And uh, people say that it's a bad Godzilla movie. I said that it was a bad Godzilla movie. I rewatched it, and it is a great <laughs> Godzilla movie. It's Man, you took it a lot further than I thought you were going to. <laughs> <laughs> Here, here is how, and I'm, I'm going to mention this. I'm so, going to mention so, this again when we actually do our uh, Roland Emmerich series. But here is how much Roland Emmerich understands uh, American audiences. When Matthew Broderick is with Jean Reno, and uh, they like they're going out, and the, the French people are dressed in the American soldiers' outfits, and they're all going by and getting a stick of gum, and then. Matthew Broderick's like, what, why are you chewing gum? And Jean Reno is like, it makes us look more American. And then like it pants around the car and they're all chewing gum. And it's like, yes, yes, it does. <laughs> just... That definitely sounds like, a, like a, a thing that they would do in a movie to make people seem more American, like to make a foreign actor seem more American. And it works. Sounds like I... a 100% like behind the scenes tidbit that they just threw into the movie. <laughs> it's... Rosebud was a reference to the fact that Godzilla is a female, correct? Uh, asexual. Or, <laughs> that's, that's, no, hermaphrodite? The, uh, no, oh, she, yeah, 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 you're right, you're right. Yeah, able to reproduce I, asexually. I forgot about that. Right. So it's basically uh, Jurassic Park. Right. That they ripped that off from. Well, no, no, Jurassic Park, they change sex, and then they have dinosaur boinkin. Uh, Godzilla just... Um, <laughs> reproduces reproduces asexually. Right. Because then there's <laughs> there's that line of what's the fun in that? <laughs> so um, so what what decade did this movie come out again? 1998. It is nice. You know, like like late 90s movies are not necessarily good, and Godzilla definitely has some of those trappings. And you know, like the CGI, it's not great. It definitely looks a little bit dated. Um, but <laughs> you're still going with this, Nathan. You're still doing this. It's, it's, it's a good movie. It's a fun. It's I agree. it might not be good. Fact, it is a very fun movie. That reminds me of uh, there's this movie from 1941 called Citizen Kane, and um, for some reason, it, despite the fact that it was like there was a ton of money dumped into the marketing for it, the tagline for Citizen Kane was just "It's terrific." <laughs> it's great. Come up with. So it's here, just it's terrific. Here are the next three of my Emmerich movies that I've got lined up. 
I never watched. I've never. Seen, I haven't seen any of those movies. It's Anonymous, White House Down, and uh, <clears throat> Independence Day. Because I still yeah, have never found seen my copy of there. Independence Day Resurgence. Okay, so <clears throat> Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane. <sighs> Citizen Kane is one of the greatest movies of all time. Look, so here's the thing. Can I stop you right there for a second? Because no. Yes. Here's something that's fascinating to me about Citizen Kane is that. I feel like most of the time, if somebody watches Citizen Kane, they're like, yeah, you know what? It, they just kind of shrug their shoulders like, yeah, it really is one of the greatest movies of all time, which is fascinating to me. That like you could watch a movie, recognize its genius, but because of the stature that it has in popular culture, you're just like, oh, yeah, it completely met my expectation of being one of the greatest movies of all time. Therefore, eh, cool. Yeah, it did what it was supposed to do. Like, Here's that's such the thing. A weird- place in history that it occupies here is the thing about citizen kane and like the even my begrudging like yeah sure fine it's great whatever there is a reason why on uh the episodes that we do that are just reviews that are not doing like these um broader themes or where we're not talking about you know uh, multiple movies in one episode but when we are just doing a straight review of let's talk about everything that we can think of, you know, before our brains start hurting, because we always have more to say about whatever movie, there is a reason that we start with what was our prior knowledge and how did that shape our expectations? Because like that to me, that, that plays such a massive role in, in what you think about a movie because, um, you know, like Godzilla, <laughs> remembering that Godzilla was kind of a trash movie, I was going back to it with just like, eh, fine, Emmerich movies are a lot of fun, I'll give it another shot. Like, I was expecting it to be kind of trashy. I watched Mm. it, and I had so much fun with it that, yeah, it's kind of trashy, but who cares? It is a fun, giant monster movie and kind of a good American interpretation of Godzilla. It is a good movie. I had a lot of fun because of those lower expectations with citizen Kane, where, you know, like for, for decades, countless uh, movie review top 100 lists have it as like the greatest American movie of all time. Like Mm -hmm. even American, the greatest of all time, period. the greatest American movie. Yes. And some greatest of all time. It's just like, I like it's such, such high expectations that, Mm. I don't even know what I was expecting the movie to be. And I think that maybe that is part of why I, I think that's part of why my feelings about the movie are kind of like, I, whew, I have weird feelings about it because like mm. I recognize the things about it that are great and amazing and, and groundbreaking. And there's, there is a ton to love about this movie, but it's also like the, the greatest, you know, it's because I keep using food as analogies. It's kind of like if you go someplace that is just like a dive and you're like, oh, I guess I'll eat here. And the food doesn't suck. You're like, oh, my God, this food is amazing. But if someone is talking up a restaurant and be like, oh, man, this food is awesome. Like it's a little bit pricey, but it's totally worth it. And then you eat it and you're like, I I'd rather just go to that little divey place. Like, you know, it's yeah. like it, it's one of those things where it is it really worth 25 bucks for a hamburger? Like really? And that's kind of my feeling with uh, citizen Kane. It's like, I, is it the greatest? I don't, 
I don't know. And I understand the role that it plays in history. And I understand why that uh, is like so important and why that keeps it. Um, it's the, the stature that it has for as long as it has. But at some point I question, uh, should a movie, should the quality of a movie be based solely on uh, like what it did or on the quality of the movie? You know, like, th- does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit. So, so for example, uh, we've talked about some kind of trashy movies on the podcast before. And one of the ones that I absolutely love is uh, the Zodiac Killer, which was put out by Agfa and screened at oh Chat God, Film Fest a few years ago. So terrible. <laughs> yes, it is. But Very, it's enjoyable for sure. But but when yes. I watched it, Zach Carlson was there and he introed the movie and he told the story of how the director like just knew that this movie was going to end up catching the Zodiac Killer. Yeah, <laughs> because like. The, the killer was so narcissistic uh, that of course he's going to go to a movie about him and the director just like knew that he uh, would be able to identify him just by looking him in the eyes. Like the story about the movie made it so much more fascinating to me that I have mm. a, uh, a, a much fonder reaction to the movie than you do because you just watched it by yourself uh, without the the you know rest of the audience laughing at the things with right. you you didn't have the <clears throat> intro you just had the movie and it kind of right. sucks and some imdb trivia <laughs> right orson uh orson was story but it was there was no atmosphere to it really yeah and and so it doesn't carry the same weight so like for me i would definitely rate that movie higher than you not based on the movie, but based off of stuff surrounding the movie. And, right. but like, I also recognize like, yeah, it's still kind of a trash movie. Like, but, but that's okay. And I'm not saying that citizen Kane is trash, but what I am saying is how much of its stature is based off of what it did at the time versus what mm-hmm. still holds up today. Well, that's interesting because I've rewatched it for, I, th- I think it's the third time I've seen it. It might be the se- only the second because I watched it twice in one year because I watched it because I found it at the public library and was like, oh, I need to watch this because I love movies and I'm told that this is the best movie. So this is a movie that I, like it's an obligatory kind of watch. Right. And I really like, I was kind of blown away by it. And then like a few months later in my introduction to film class, I had to watch it again. Uh, so that was like eight years ago. But on this rewatch, it just, like, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, yes, the greatest movie of all time. Like, I almost felt like it wasn't going to live up to those expectations again. Um, <clears throat> and I was concerned, especially since I was inadvertently hyping it up so much for you. <laughs> no, no, to, you weren't also, because, like, just all of cinema has hyped it up. Like, Right. But, like, going into it again, I was like, maybe it's not the best movie ever. And then I watched it, and I'm like, I would never put it as my favorite movie. This is kind of the weird thing about it, having this this status as the best movie of all time. It's that nobody will ever put it as one of their personal favorite movies ever because that's like the equivalent of a film student hanging a Pulp Fiction poster on their wall. <laughs> <laughs> like We've nobody's going to take there. you seriously to say that's one of your favorite movies. But like watching it again, it's like if this movie did not have the reputation that it has, I could easely see it being one of my favorite movies. Oh, which absolutely. Is, which is a weird thing. And like, it's almost like 
it is kind of one of my favorite movies. I just don't want to admit it <laughs> in a way. But a lot of it, too, is I wonder how much of that is just how great the movie is, which I do think it's a brilliant movie, but it also ticks off a lot of like boxes that are really unique to me. Like I love films about journalism. I love films that are about assholes that the <laughs> film tries to redeem in some way or at least try to help you understand why they um, why they behave the way that they do. I think this movie does such an incredible job of telling you everything you need to know, like telling you everything about the character and nothing about Charles Foster Kane at the same time. Like in the end, it's like you feel like you know so much about him, but then you get that speech at the end that is so like kind of like the, the boldness of this movie is crazy where it's like there's this whole mystery in the film surrounding his last words, which are Rosebud. And in the end, nobody ever actually, the audience knows what Rosebud is, but nobody ever understands, like figures out the meaning of them, which I think is just so fascinating. Even, even by today's standards, that's such a bold choice to just like not actually give you the answers that you're searching for. Well, so, so here's the thing and with all of that. Everything that we've been searching for in this movie is kind of pointless. <laughs> the mystery is not really solved. Well, so here, here's all the stuff with that. Like, I completely agree with you that if this movie were not hyped and if it were not regarded as one of the greatest movies of all time, I would be like, oh, my God, this movie is amazing. And and like, yeah, and that's the again, that is part of why we talk about the importance of how our prior information shaped our expectations, because going into it, like I kept sort of checking it against, okay. Is it the greatest movie? You know, how are people quantifying greatest? Um, which, uh, again, why in our reviews we talk about what are some of the technical components versus what are the emotional components? Right. Because there are some movies that I love so much more than Citizen Kane because, like, they're just more fun or they make me happier or even right. if they make me sadder, like, it's such a visceral sadness that I, I can't escape it. And, like there's so many amazing movies out there that have such an emotional reaction for me that like I would say they are potentially greater movies in that regard. And so like, you know, mm. that's that's part of the how how are we quantifying greatness? Um and and I think that it's really important uh to talk about all of that and uh, <laughs> of course I think that because that's how we talk about movies um because it, I, I could very easily see a couple of cinephiles getting into an argument over whether or not uh, Citizen Kane is the greatest movie of all time because one of them might be arguing, yeah, but they did this thing. This completely revolutionized how they did blah, blah, blah. And other people might be like, yeah, but it's boring. And other people would be like, yeah, but blah, blah, blah. You know, it's the same. And you and I were texting this before, but um, it's the same way that I understand why some people absolutely hate The Shining. Uh, whereas yeah. I love it because when I first saw it, I didn't really have much of an expectation. I, I knew like the red rum, red rum, but like, that's it. I didn't really <laughs> know anything about what I was getting into. So when I watched it, I was like, Oh my God, this movie is just, Whoa. And so now every time that I watch it, there are new things that I see and like, I dig even deeper into it and I love it even more because I had that initial, I don't know what I'm expecting and it did kind of blow me away. And now every time I rewatch it, I just love it more. Whereas some people who maybe knew a lot more about it or uh, saw it later in life than I did, they might just be like, eh, it's fine. Like, I don't, 
I don't love it. Right. And, and, you know, like I get that. And I think that that might be part of it is I didn't see citizen Kane when I was in college and film school. I mm. saw it in my thirties and, um, I, yeah, some, so something that, um, I, I think that this also has an impact on how I feel about the movie. I tried watching it last night and I fell asleep because I was exhausted because I have a kid. And, uh, the, the first time that I watched it, I did not get that far into the movie before I started fading. I woke up a couple of times, you know, enough to be like, Oh, that thing's up. And then I would fall back asleep. (laughs) And then I woke up like right at the very end. Um, it's like, I caught little snippets and based off of that, initial piece i was like i mm, okay i need to rewatch it because i obviously did not see nearly enough to have a fully fledged opinion i've got to rewatch it and actually watch it all the way through but i did see enough that it got me thinking before watching it again this time not only to have a little bit more of an expectation of uh, what it was about but also to really start thinking about how uh, how the story was told you know, the fact that they did use like five different perspectives. And so they were telling like five different stories (laughs) all about the same person, but from different angles. One of them was more of the public perception. One of them was told by someone who hated him. One of them was told by someone who loved him. And so like, they all have these very different feels and, and it made me wonder how much of what's being said is, is the true nature of who he is. You know, all of them are true, All of them are true True to the the person. Right. They're all true for the person telling it. How much of it is accurate? And then there are some of those uh, themes for Charles Foster Kane that do come through that you're like, okay, yeah, that is absolutely who he is. But I think that one of the other things that I, I respect about the movie, but also potentially hurt it a little bit for me is this is one of those movies that everyone knows the ending because it's been around for 80 years. Yeah. So how can you not know that spoilers Rosebud is his sled, you know, like, right. Yeah. Like everyone knows that that's it, it's been parodied in so many different cartoons and movies and uh, it, it's just all over the place. You know, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, it's weird because like it's, I forget that this is essentially a mystery um, like the like technically the main character of the film in a certain way, like the character who is the audience surrogate, I guess, is Jerry, the reporter yeah. of the film, is going around talking to all of the um, acquaintances of of Kane. And one thing that's fascinating too is like they never show Jerry's face at any point in the movie. Oh, that is one is, thing. Like, man, that is one thing that I do love about this is how many just the use of light and shadow and how many characters God, are incredible. in shadow. And, you know, like most movie stars want their face seen at all times, like like with Sylvester Stallone and Judge Dredd. Um, <laughs> Wanting more his helmet. So, like, I, I love the fact that so much of the movie, like, the people are obscured. And, okay, I'm, I'm going to come back to that in a second. Okay, I, 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 yeah, because uh, the more that I think about this movie, like, there are all of those little things. I'm like, ooh, damn it, that was really smart. Yeah, that's so much. Ooh, yeah, that's good. Ooh, yeah, okay. Um, which again, I I think I benefited from being asleep the first time that I watched it, so <laughs> that I had time to think about it before watching it. Um, 
But here, here's where I think uh, my view of the film was definitely different than potentially other people's. Like I've said countless times, my background is psychology. And so whenever I watch a movie, like I can't divorce myself from thinking of it uh, from a psychological perspective. So knowing that Rosebud was the sled and seeing, you know, essentially like the second and a half scene of the movie, him out sledding and being taken away from his mom, it's like, oh, that was like the last happy memory that he had. And like, he is stuck in arrested development his entire life. So of course he's trying to get other people to love him because he is constantly questioning what about me caused my mom to say that she did not love me. Why did my mom give me up for money? And, and so like for me, that was what I saw the entire movie is just, yeah, of course everything that he's doing is, it's not really a cry for help, but it's a, somebody please love me and you know just trying to buy love trying to buy not even power for the sake of power but power for the sake of people loving him and uh you know like the the whole like i promise to always tell the truth with the newspaper and always fight for the little man and then like instantly turns around and starts telling lies and it's oh well it's because he was being corrupted by money it's like well not really it's more of he he tells people i'm doing he was gaslighting everyone is what he was doing yeah right it's yellow journalism sensationalism designed to get the attention of of the little people i mean it's kind of like the whole point of um like when you watch a movie that is based on a true story how there's always like they take dramatic license with certain things it's this is the way that we tell the truth by lying because you weren't there so if we exaggerate it then it kind of is like putting you in the mindset of what it was like to actually be there in a certain right. way and he kind of just takes that too far and realizes how much sway he has over public opinion and he tries to exert his will over the people like i think the most fascinating thing for me on this rewatch was his relationship with susan the opera singer and the way yeah. that he uses her as a pawn to try and like prove to the public that he says that she's a great singer and that she's going to be a big star. And because, and like the fact that he can't make her a big star drives him crazy and that she isn't loved the way that he wants her to be loved because he's kind of like channeling that, like trying to relive that or live that glory vicariously through her. And it doesn't happen. It drives him insane because he wants to be loved. And it's right after like the devastating election loss for him and, yeah, oh man, it's, it's, yeah. it, Sorry. it is a great movie. My initial response of uh, <laughs> fine, whatever, it's a great movie. Like, yes, it is genuinely a, a fantastic movie. I, I, again, I think knowing the ending um, shaped how I was watching it, that mm-hmm. maybe a lot of people, especially initial audiences, when they first watched it, they were like, what's Rosebud? What's Rosebud? And then when you get to the end, like, oh, what? That That was Rosebud? for me it was like well yeah it's his sled and then i so so yeah i I think that that shaped things so uh going back just a second to the people being in shadows one of the things that i love so 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 much about that is it's not used exclusively in memories um yeah but it is used a lot because the vast majority of the movie is told in flashback or you know people recounting their experiences and it kind of highlights the fact that 
how much of their story can be trusted because there are probably some literal blank spots in what they remember, or there's probably right. things that were obscured by emotion or like it, it is just such a great visual way to get you to doubt what's going on. And Absolutely, yeah. it, it's the kind of thing like that's so it feels so <clears throat> I'm sure it felt that way for the time, but even today it feels very audacious and it feels like the kind of thing that could only be made by an outsider. Like this was Orson yeah. Welles' first movie. He came from the Mercury Theater and, you know, he got this like blank check kind of contract where he had full artistic control and final cut over the movie, which is was completely unheard of at the time and even still to this day is very, like only reserved for like big name directors like, you know, um, Fincher or somebody. Yeah. Um, but like, it's the kind of movie, it blows me away that Orson Welles was only 24 when he made this movie and that it, it was his You, But at the same yeah. time, it's also the kind of movie that could only come from somebody who is like, I, I read something where um, somebody was asking Orson Welles, like, what do you attribute to your success with Citizen Kane? And he's like, ignorance. Like, I didn't know <laughs> what I was doing. I just knew what I wanted to do. And I happened to, have enough money to surround myself with the best people who could make my vision come true. Like Greg Toland, I think is kind of the sort of unsung hero of the movie. He's the cinematographer who was able to get like so many of these incredible shots, like deep focus shots in the movie. And he does like all the, uh, they do all these long takes that feels like it's very much pulled from the theater. And, you know, Wells had the background, had a background in radio and that's why the sound design is so incredible. Like I love the way, Whenever they're in Xanadu, their voices echo so loudly that just makes the place feel so vast and empty and isolating. Yeah. And uses these great like miniatures. Like I meant to ask you, so how did you feel about the opening scene of the movie? Did you feel like you had accidentally put in a Universal Monsters movie because it really feels <laughs> like a horror movie when you first see that no trespassing sign and xanadu kind of like off in the distance in that incredible matte painting no i don't i didn't really think about it too much um because again like i knew it starts with him dying and rosebud uh and i God, i cannot ever hear orson wells say rosebud <laughs> without thinking of the critic with rosebud yes rosebud green peas with their country goodness and, uh, no yeah I never with their country goodness and green penis like god i love the critics so much uh so so yeah that that was one of my other uh prior informations is i i can't watch it without thinking of the critic um but no the the part that threw me a little bit and honestly I did not like it. Oh man, I did not like it. <clears throat> that opening newsreel where it's mm -hmm. uh uh Charles Foster Kane, born in the life of luxury. Like I I hated that. I hated it so much. Did you really? Yes, I hated it. Oh man, it. I you know, actually when I was watching it, I was like in the back of my mind, I was like I wonder how Nathan would feel about I hate this it. because it's very goofy, but it's also like what I was reading about that is that um Orson Welles actually got the newsreel um, department of RKO to cut that together like an actual newsreel that you would have seen from the era, which is so it's like I get why you would hate it, but it's also deliberately meant to be terrible in well, a way. Here's the thing, <laughs> but here's the thing about that I hated it when I watched it before I fell asleep because I was like, wait, what? And I did not realize that it was just a, a sort of, um, 
I, I didn't realize that it was just a jumping off point to go the into prologue. the prologue. Right. And so watching it, it was like, this is not what I expected it to be. I don't, ah, uh, please tell me that the entire movie is not going to be like this. And it goes on for a while and I was getting really annoyed. It's like 20 and, minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then it cuts to all of the shadowy news people. Just like, okay, this uh, isn't telling the story that we want. And it's like, okay, yes, this is, the, <laughs> this is the movie that I want to watch. So watching it, you know, in its entirety, knowing that's what was going on again, very smart and absolutely loved it. So also, yeah, it's, uh, I, oh, one go, of, go ahead. Uh, I was just thinking of is how is it that, that they're so they're able to so convincingly make all of these people look old, but like in 2020 we still have a really hard time making people look old and young in, in movies like I was thinking about how just incredible the makeup effects in this movie were to the point where like when I originally found out that Orson Welles was 24 when he made this movie I was like no there's no way like he had to be at least 50 because of the way that he looks but yeah. what was in, what's crazy too is like even in the scenes when he's young like he's still in a ton of makeup and wearing a corset because he wanted to make himself look like like mythically handsome basically so like even the young version of orson wells orson wells is still wearing prosthetics which is wild so to me part of the way that they made it look good is uh you didn't have super high def cameras and a lot of stuff was obscured well, in shadow and so it it was easier to hide point. the seams the other thing that really st- sticks out to me too is like especially with watching all these other movies from the 40s is um, Orson Welles does not use close-ups very often. <clears throat> like he used almost always is shooting everything in mid shot, which is one of the other things I love, especially with his deep focus, uh, cinematography is he never tells you where to look. Yeah. Like he, his whole thing with this movie was like, he wanted to shoot the movie the way that the eye sees and he sees everything. Like he didn't want to tell you where to look. He wanted your eye to be drawn to whatever you want to look at, which is really Cool, another kind of like theater thing that he does, and yeah, man, I don't know. This is an incredible movie. It's it, so there's so many, every single character is so well developed, and like the acting is just extraordinary across the board. Oh, Orson Welles is an amazing actor with such he's a commanding so, voice, and he's so convincing as an old man. Like in that yeah. scene, where he's trashing Susan's room at the end of the movie. The way that he walk, like the way that he like. A part of it, I think, is actually he at one point during the making of the movie, he fell and like broke his ankle and had to wear a brace <laughs> for part of it. So he probably was just wearing a leg brace, but like he moves stiffly like an old man. And also, I love Joseph Cotton in his old man thing in his wheelchair when he's trying to like get the dude to get, the, <laughs> to get him some cigars and stuff. Like he, like he totally is convincing as an old man. And I'm pretty sure the first time I watched the movie, like. I assumed they were different actors. Yeah. Playing those roles. It's it's really truly it's it, extraordinary. It really is one of the greatest movies of all time. There really is <laughs> In not quotes. Well, but like but, there, yeah. there really is no, not I, much negative that I can say about it. I mean, even God, even the political themes, they are still so oh, relevant. Like when he loses and they uh, they already have the two newsprints ready with he won the election and uh fraud uh fraud fraud of the, the polls. Balance. yeah yeah and it was just like ah oh, so that's great. not <laughs> that's not relevant to 
Can we talk about the fact, hold on, I actually wrote this thing down where he says something like, I'm not making any campaign campaign promises because I'm too busy trying to keep them. Yeah. Like trying to arrange to keep them. So like yeah. he is a completely <laughs> populist candidate and his whole his whole platform is basically lock him up talking about his opponent Geddes. Yeah. Yeah, the the amount of double speak that he does and the fact that he was like I didn't make any promises cuz I didn't think that I was going to win. Now that I'm going to win, I have promises. But I'm not going to tell you what they are cuz I'm too busy keeping them. Yeah. And there ooh, yeah, there was so much about it that still remains politically relevant. There really is not anything bad that I can say about this movie. It, it is so amazing and 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 the more that I think about it, especially with those little things like the use of light and dark and um, the use of that like split focus where you have the the close up in focus as well as the uh, distant stuff in focus too. Like, yeah, there's so much going on in this movie that I'm like, you know what? Yes, this movie is absolutely brilliant. It is absolutely amazing. Too. My my last thing is the editing. I actually wrote one of the things that I did in my intro to film classes i wrote about the editing in particular like the uh one of my favorite scenes of the movie is the breakfast montage with his first wife where like basically they oh, go yeah <laughs> years of marriage over the course of that one scene and by the end of it they're like sitting super far like they they start off with like a little table sitting right next to each other and then at the end they are at the end, she's reading the chronicle rather than uh it, the, yeah she's yeah there's that's the other thing like there's so many little details like Wells is paying so much attention to just like this little minutiae in every single frame of the movie that a lot of people wouldn't even pick up on. Like the fact that Susan is always listed as a singer in quotes. Yeah. Which they, I think they do draw attention to at one point, but like, I don't know. There's just so many little things in the movie. It's just so much incredible attention to detail and it feels so alive. And I think the, the unfortunate thing uh, too about its reputation as the greatest movie ever is that I think a lot of people assume that it's going to be like this boring, pretentious, artsy kind of film. But like you watch it, and it's still incredibly entertaining, incredibly fast paced, and also just really moving. Like there's something about that final shot of Rosebud burning that is really kind of haunting and sad and tragic. Well, yeah, because like his whole thing was, I want everyone to love me. Like again, because he was sort of stuck in an arrested development of being a little kid and not understanding why his mother would give him up and having an abusive father and then hating everything about uh, his, his legal guardian, that banker dude, like, with with his entire Mr. Thatcher, Mr. Thatcher, yes, his entire. I love being, the way he says Thatcher. I love the way that he says everything. His, I, oh, it's amazing. He's just great. Uh, but yeah, like his entire being is wanting people to love him and remember him and to like you know be this person. And the one thing that people were actually trying to figure out that they thought was fascinating about him just gets burned up in a fire, and no one is going to know. And so he's just just this crazy old dude who died saying Rosebud. Like it mm. is such a I yeah, it is a, it is a great movie. I <laughs> genuinely love it. I just I'm hate so the glad fact that you love it. I hate the fact that it has the <clears throat> reputation that it does. I I would I hate love, that everyone loves this movie. I would no, love I the, Well, like I would love this movie so much more if if lists were not uh, um, enumerated, 
like if this wasn't the best movie, if it was just, hey, here's a bunch of movies that you should probably see because there's something really great or really fun or just, you know, worth seeing about them. But we're not going to tell you what it is because that spoils it. Go watch mm. it. And then we'll talk about it. Like it, if there was that sort of list, I think that I would be like, oh, my God, this movie is absolutely amazing. Why aren't more people talking about it? But the fact that everyone's talking about it, it's just like, ah, eh, yeah. I mean, did we really say anything in the last 30 minutes that hasn't already been said about it? Mm. Eh, probably not. Probably yet not. A, yeah, that's, yet that's... another couple of dudes talking about the genius of Orson Welles or whatever. <laughs> that's the other thing. It's so hard to talk about some of these movies because it's like, yeah, what can I say? It's Citizen Kane. I mean, you know, everything that needs to be said has already been said about it in some way or another, but. Well, so one of the things that we did not say is like how uh, it sort of is a really good jumping off point in terms of the theme. And I, I think the rest of the movies will probably not spend as much time talking about because no, so. they're not the greatest movies of all time. Still, <laughs> I still don't know. I don't know. know. There's, <sighs> we're not talking about Casablanca either because we didn't rewatch that. No, Casablanca is Casablanca is great. It's boring, but I love it. It's what? It's boring. You really think it's boring? Yes, I love it. That's I, weird. I love Casablanca. It's a boring movie. I'm just really glad you didn't say that Citizen Kane is boring. That was my biggest fear. I was so. I mean, it, I was convinced that you're gonna be like, ah, oh, it's kind of boring. It is, but like also, it it's boringly captivating. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but <laughs> it means objectively the movie is kind of boring. Like, okay, genuinely, what happens in the movie? Nothing. But yes. everything. The brilliance no- of it. Nothing. Like, so- nothing happens. The entire movie. It's like is, life. Yes, <laughs> life sucks. the The entire movie is just people talking it is a citizen kane is boring like a podcast yes <laughs> by the end of the podcast everyone who listens to this is like what actually happened during that podcast nothing it was just people talking yes <laughs> that's that's going to be one of our new taglines video monsters just people talking uh, just people, yeah okay i was say the podcast about nothing and i was like no i'm pretty sure there's probably a seinfeld podcast out there that has already taken that. No, no, just the just people talking. Uh, you know, we should get someone to like make shirts and buttons and stickers and stuff. Um, anywho, so I again absolutely love Citizen Kane. It's boring. Nothing happens. People I talk. Have said anything? No, you shouldn't have. People talk about what happened, but you don't see it. Oh you, no, you, no, you see no. some things. That's okay. what's great what, about this movie is so much of it is conveyed visually. One of the things that you do see happen is uh, his wife after she had that suicide attempt. That's a thing that you see happen. But even then, Man, that's, even then, you don't see. God, it's boring. You don't see her trauma leading up to that moment. You see the newspaper articles and then. You I get think her, you see it on stage, like get, the way I mean, that you get a little bit of it, but you get that. And you get it through the fact that, like, their relationship is so toxic. Like, he is literally just. Oh no, he's a horrible human being. 
And because you, he wants to, he, what, the way that she says it is is perfect. It's like you don't love me; you just want me to love you. Yeah, but and but really even, what he wants is for other people to love him through her. And it's, the conversation, so the things that they talk about, are great. Uh, but you you get her initial performance, and then you get a lot of news articles. You you get the '40s version of a montage leading up to her post suicide attempt. And so, like, you don't see her trauma leading up to it. You just hear her talking about it. Even even the breakfast scene, which is great. I think that the suicide scene is, is like, that's how you realize there was trauma. Well, and no, you can tell if, the relationship. Of course, that's how you recognize there was trauma, because she tells you that he didn't understand. This was the only way that uh, he she could show him how she felt. Uh, but like even with the breakfast scene, which was great, and I do love it, and there was a lot of humor in the sadness, and like even the the subtle things, like the fact that his wife was reading a chronicle by the end, rather than the what was his name of the his newspaper? Was it the Inquisitor? The, da- the Daily Inquirer. Inquirer, not the Inquisitor. Uh, so like there are little, <laughs> there are things like that, but even then, you just see them talking about what they're mad at rather than seeing some of what happens it's it's a boring movie i mean there's there's truth to that but it is a 1940s movie where it's like that but also like so much of it is reflected in like like i mentioned before like the scene with them in the in the great hall of xanadu and she's putting together the jigsaw puzzle and they're literally shouting at each other from across the room and can barely hear each other like that's such an incredible way to like sonically and visually represent like how much their relationship has decayed and yeah, how no, the things that are they have cut themselves off from the rest of the world and again the things that are shown <laughs> are great i'm just saying it is also boring i right, i can i can love it and say the movie is boring i guess it it just is a, it's okay <laughs> you, you should i understand <laughs> Video monsters, where Citizen Kane is boring. <laughs> that is definitely not a tagline. I can't. <laughs> I don't know if I can get behind that. But I, that's okay. I, I literally just said that the movie is fantastic, and were it not for the fact that it's so highly regarded, I would be saying that it's one of the greatest movies ever. I will say, I expected us to it's be also boring. this movie. I, I'm really shocked that we mostly agree. No, I, I did not expect to hate it. Um, I <laughs> I didn't expect you to hate it either. Too either. I feel like I I figured you would be have a begrudging acceptance of its of its uh, status, and then kind of be like, eh, I mean, you know. I just I again I just don't like the greatest. It just so okay. So putting it yeah, in, I don't either. It's it's kind of a, being a movie fan is a weird thing because like I'm obsessed with list making and ranking things and stuff, but I also kind of reject that at the same time. Like I like making personal lists, but I also reject like the idea of there being one movie to rule them all. See, you know? I, I hate rankings because <laughs> I hate rankings. for. I do it reasons. more just as a personal exercise because like nine times out of 10, I can't really, I'm constantly changing my ranking rankings of things and my ratings on them. Like I'm never, fully satisfied with where i sit on on really yeah. anything well, i still just enjoy the 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 deliberation and the 
anguish I put myself through doing it. <laughs> That's why when we talk about movies, we so just much. talk about what qualities a movie has uh so a a much more and we're not going to get into this but (laughs) beyond just my statement um in in a much more modern context i also recently watched drive and i think drive is an amazing movie that was overhyped and is kind of boring that was another actually what drive in that same film class that I watched Citizen Kane in. <laughs> we we will do a full review on Drive at some point. Um, well, you know what's funny? Drive is the very first movie I ever wrote a review for. It's I myself. I didn't. Pub, it wasn't published or anything, but I wrote a review for. You you can read it when we do our full episode. All right, so bring us back to the theme of Citizen oh, Kane. Oh yeah, let's go. With the fact that, and and we mentioned this, but Citizen Kane or uh, um, Charles Foster Kane is a terrible human being. Like it's understood why, in terms of trying to regain that parental affection. Um, however, that doesn't excuse it. Like understanding someone being a terrible Absolutely. person doesn't mean that they are then allowed to be a terrible person. Uh, and and he is a terrible person. And he pushes away. Like, that's the weird thing. Even though he just wants to be loved, he ends up pushing people away that could have loved him. And Absolutely, uh, yeah. It's fascinating. There's there's a similar thing that kind of comes up in The Great Dictator that I'll get to at some point whenever we talk about that. Because well, there, there's some talk, similarities between those movies. We can talk about that one next. Um, it's been forever since I've seen Foster it. Kane and Hitler. <laughs> well, I guess there is also that. Uh, it, it, it has been a very long time since I've seen Great Dictator, so I don't remember much about it. But like mm-hmm. most of the movies that, that I watched, at least, uh, or even looking back through the list, the movies that I've seen from the 40s, there's just that sort of driving theme of distrust and loneliness and isolation. And I know that that's not exclusive to the 40s, but... It, the 40s i feel like were such a weird time because it was after the great depression and you know people were probably still reeling from that and probably still trying to get back on their feet and yes i know hollywood they yeah, probably I mean, was, weren't dealing with it as much well it's still really the great depression and before the united states entered world war ii i mean world war ii is what got the u.s out of the great depression i guess i mean i guess the early 40s we were starting to climb our way back out in a, in a way because we were still making bank on on all those other countries <laughs> killing each other but uh, it's sad that it's still relevant um but but yeah so like america was coming out of the great depression and then goes into world war ii and so yeah. like it's just such a dark time a, a very long dark time where you don't always know who to trust and you, you know, the people who have been to war, like that's one of the things about the, uh, the universal monsters is they, they very much represent like people who have come back from war and are no longer the same. You know, they represent some of that trauma. And I, I don't think that that was necessarily intentional with all of them in terms of trying to, uh, be war allegories for all of the movies. But I think that there was some of that general distrust and general um, just just unease about when someone goes away to war, they kind of come back a monster. Not in a Absolutely, monstrous yeah, person, but like there's something inside of them that then they are struggling with. And 
you know, no, no one makes that clearer than the Wolfman that, you know, hates everything about who he has become mm. and is living a very traumatic experience. And like, I, I get it that werewolves are a great allegory for uh, puberty, but man, I, especially the, the original, the Wolfman, I feel like he is a better representation of PTSD and the, the trauma that goes with oh, that. Sure. No. And that's, that's what really struck me watching Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, which is such so weird that they picked Frankenstein <laughs> because friends barely in the damn movie. Well, He's the it's one who because... has screen time. Dracula and Wolfman are in there way more. <laughs> I, here, here's the other thing that I love about that. Uh, all of the movies, like they don't refer to Frankenstein's monster as Frankenstein. He is never know, referred is... to as Frankenstein in any of the movies that I've seen so far. Like he's always yeah, like either even the monster or an Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Yeah. Um, who is it that plays is, is Carlo Frankenstein? And no, no, it's not no. Carlo. Uh, Glenn Abbott, uh, I think Glenn strange, Glenn strange. Yeah. Glenn strange. Yeah. So the, he is literally like in Glenn strange as the monster. Yeah. So it's so funny. Cause it's like in the title, they recognize that the general public just refers to him as Frankenstein, but in the movie they're like, no, no, he's the monster. <laughs> Cause Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein is not in the movie in any way. Except for the fact that Dracula just finds Doctor Frankenstein's, the the whole plot of the movie doesn't make any sense. So like, what what Dracula, let's 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 come let's come back to Universal Monsters because if we start getting on that tangent, okay, that's right, what I'm going right. to spend the rest of the time talking about because okay. I love me some Universal Monsters. Okay, um, so basically, all the movies in the '40s were super serious, even when they're not serious. Like there there's an there's an inherent darkness in almost everything that kind of reflects just like the global mood at the time you you know what i think is probably the best representation of even something that is supposed to be bright is just so damn dark even children's movies even pinocchio one of the most horrific movies that has ever been made that people for some reason show to children what is wrong (laughs) with you do not show pinocchio to children i watched i watched pinocchio me and or ali and i watched Pinocchio. did you watch it with your children no we didn't and while we were watching it we were like i was like man i really can't wait to watch this with the kids when they're like in like five years whatever (laughs) <laughs> like first of all I, the first thing i did before i watched pinocchio was i read reviews of it on common sense media sure which anytime there's ever a kids movie with some objectionable material in it i highly recommend checking out common sense media because you get some <laughs> hilarious like parents talking about how pinocchio should be rated r and how offended they were that they say jackass and <laughs> see these, i just like, i just go to things. imdb and look at the parents rating that's a much more yeah, no, I do response. That. Here's the That's, thing that I don't like about IMDb's appearance rating, though. Um, like when they rate something as severe, that I'm like, yeah, it's more than none, but like there's like one boob. Is that really worth a severe rating? It's always, or? It's always weird. And they house their, it's like mild, moderate, and severe. Like there are yeah. only three levels, which I feel like they need more because it's hard to really gauge it based on that i mean some they'll te- they'll give you a description but even still like to see it in context pinocchio is a horrifying movie like it is <laughs> so terrifying disturbing. it is so disturbing like it's crazy how many shots in that movie literally like sent a jolt down my spine because of how horrifying it was and like oh my gosh so i i plan on letting my kids watch um uh <clears throat> 
Oh yeah. By the way, uh, I don't think that I've actually like <laughs> officially announced that on the podcast yet. But anyone who follows me personally on Facebook, uh, I'm expecting another kid in a few months. So, yay! That's why I started saying kids. Congratulations. Plural. Yeah, I'm excited. It's awesome, man. <laughs> Jess is not happy with the name that I want to name it, and so this is obviously <laughs> not what it's going to be named. I want to name him Wolfman Piranha. Uh, she is not okay with that. It'd be like Wolfman Jack. You know, exactly. That was his real name, wasn't it? Like, doesn't it have like such a, a, a nice ring to it? You could just name him uh, Larry Talbot. <laughs> uh, no. Uh, or like, or like Lawrence Dante. And give him Joe Dante to ooh, represent. Her. Ooh. ooh, I'm gonna have to think about that. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm going to let my kids watch Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein long before I let them watch Pinocchio. Oh, 100%. Like when I was watching Abbott and Costello, I'm like, oh, this would be an incredible way to introduce the kids to these movies. Yeah. Like it would be like doing some of the, uh, like doing Frankenstein. Uh, yeah, that would be too rough for them. Pinocchio think, is how you introduce your kids to child sex trafficking. Yeah, it really is. It's bizarre, man. Okay, so I, I'm going to tell this quick story really quick because yeah. I Pinocchio is a rewatch for me, but the last time I watched the movie, I was probably Ian's age. Like, I was probably like eight or nine. That's my oldest son. He's nine. And it's so, super weird because before I watched it, I couldn't remember hardly anything about it. Like, I remembered I had some vague memories of, you know, Pinocchio dancing and donkeys i didn't remember the context for the for the donkeys <laughs> right and then i remember the whale i remembered monstro but it's so weird because when i watched this movie it was like a time capsule like the opening scene i felt like i remembered every second of it and like i started remembering weird like things from my childhood like i remembered the sights and smells from the trailer that we lived in and <laughs> and it's so weird because pinocchio was not a movie that i loved as a kid it's not one that i even remember watching like, I feel like I just rented it and watched it once or twice and never really thought about it ever again. Yeah. But, like, there were so many specific scenes, like all the clocks on the walls. Like, I remembered every bit of that. And, like, I remember being terrified when Pinocchio catches his finger on fire when he touches the candle, like, the candle, which is weird because that's the only thing I remember being scared of. <laughs> like, that scared <laughs> well, me. I, like, I guess I, I feel like I, it was, like, a traumatic experience and so i just blocked it all out well and i think that part of the reason for that <clears throat> is like when you're a kid you understand Memory's fire an amazing thing what well, you understand fire yeah. is hot you know like you don't have to be that old to know don't touch that that's hot you'll burn yourself but you don't understand the context of being kidnapped and you don't understand the context of being sold into child slavery like Being so taken many, to pleasure island by uncle vernon yeah so like all of the things about the movie that make <laughs> it terrifying you don't get the context as a kid you're just like oh here's a little puppet that turns into a real boy and yeah like i i think that even though i don't want to show it to my kids until they are much older it's also one of those like i i watched it as a kid and it didn't traumatize me yeah. because i didn't get it you know like it, or it's did it or <laughs> maybe yeah. it did. That might be why I love horror movies, especially no, body were, horror movies. There were multiple times where Alex <clears throat> and I were like, like shouting out loud, like "Oh my god!" at Pinocchio because, like, we've talked many times on the podcast about how basically all of the classic Disney animated movies are secretly horror films in some way or another. Yes, but with Pinocchio, it is not 
secretly a horror movie. It is a straight up horror movie. I mean, yes. in every sense of the word, like every scene of that movie has some kind of horror element to it in some way. Like it's basically child's play if Chucky was the victim. <laughs> <laughs> it is insane. Well, yeah, because like his his first day of existence, which I'm going to come back to the fact that every single character in Pinocchio is a horrible human being, uh, yeah. just like in Citizen Kane. His <laughs> first day of existence, he gets tricked by Honest John into uh, to working for Stromboli. And then on his way home from running away from Stromboli because he was locked in a cage, he gets picked up by Honest John again and sold to the coachman to go to Pleasure Island. And then he comes home to his dad not being there. And then he has to journey to the bottom of the ocean and get eaten by a whale like Dude had not even been alive for 24 hours. And then he drowns, basically. Or, well, I don't know if he really drowned, but that scene of him face down... He's waterlogged. ...is just... Because, you know, they just needed to put him next to the fire, dry him out a little bit. But there's that, that shot where, like, it's like a smash cut to him face down in a puddle, and it plays that music really loudly. Like, that is disturbing like that is horrifying the child dead dead he was under the water for a long time i don't even understand like how he was supposed to be it's it's so but yeah like (laughs) i think it was probably just head trauma from the from the from the whale pinocchio had not even been alive for 24 hours by the time that all of that starts happening so yeah, he was he was t- kidnapped and take like taken for slave labor and then he was human trafficked. Yeah, and so almost turned into a almost turned into a donkey. Which, by the way, that scene of Lampwick turning into a donkey God. is almost as disturbing as like the transformation in American Werewolf in London or something. Like it is, it is terrifying. Like it yeah. is so brutal that, and that is how you introduce children to body horror. Uh, it is absolutely hundred percent. Oh God! Like, there's so many things that, as a kid, you don't think about. But rewatching it, I was like, "This is terrifying." What the hell were these people thinking when they made this movie? Like, when the coachman is uh, taking his cart full of kids back up to Pleasure Island, using the donkeys who used to be boys to drive the cart. And also, one thing I didn't remember that really surprised me was he has like literal demons working for him like those black things with like the like it is what the i I still do not understand like i don't understand how all of that stuff works in terms of like Mm -hmm. how are they turning into donkeys like yeah i get the line of uh whatever like let a kid be himself long enough and he'll make a jackass of himself or whatever but like i don't i do not understand the world in which pinocchio lives it it kind of threw me off when like I, at first like he gets turned into a like not a real boy but just a living puppet, and then like when he's on his way to school, it really surprised me to see Honest John was an anthropomorphized fox. Yep. Like I was like, oh, so like humans just live alongside animals that can talk and it's normal yeah, and that's I. I- I don't even know what and, kind of world this is. It is it's a very terrifying bizarre. world. Here's, 
Yeah, it's like, it's also weird too that Geppetto, like Pinocchio's been alive for maybe like four hours and, or like six hours and most of that he was sleeping, I guess. And then Geppetto's like, okay, you're going off to school. I'm not even going to tell you where it is to walk you there. Just go ahead and walk off to school off all on your own. Did, did you watch that cracked video that I sent you? Oh no, I forgot to. I forgot. Uh, you, <laughs> you should. There's uh man, I, I crack used to be really funny. Um, but I love the stuff that Daniel O'Brien does. That yes. Is, is yeah. It's one of the Dan O'Brien, um, OCPD obsessive pop. Yeah. No. Oh, sorry. OPCD obsessive pop culture disorder where yeah, yeah, yeah. he's talking about Pinocchio. And one of the things that he talks about is the fact that Gebetto's like, Oh, I want a real boy. And then he wakes up. And the first thing that he says to Pinocchio is okay, time to go to school. <laughs> man, I, I miss o- OPCD. It's a, he, a good show. Um, Dan O'Brien writes for uh, last week tonight now. Yes, he does. And that makes me happy. It he's, does me too. I love, he's love a very show. funny, smart man. And I, I am glad that uh, I'm glad that he's still doing things. He always makes me laugh. Mm. Uh, so, so yeah, the, God, there, there's two main things that I want to mention about Pinocchio because there's still a lot of other movies that I at least want to mention. First thing, uh, everyone remembers. I got no strings to hold me down. Right. I got no strings to hold me got down, no to make me frown, hmm. make me frown. Like, yeah, everyone knows that song. It's one of the iconic Disney songs that you just hear all the time. Ultron says it in a in the Avengers Age of Ultron movie. That's yeah. one of his things. You know, is, so it's so like- here, here's the thing about the rest of that song, though. As soon as Pinocchio is done singing, the rest of the marionettes are just trying to f*** him. Like... All yeah. of those other puppets are like, oh, I'd let you cut my strings. I'd let you, I, man, I don't even know what, but they're all like, <laughs> I'll meet you behind the school. I'll meet you over here on the hills. I'll like all of the little girl puppets are just like, hey, Pinocchio, <clears throat> uh, why don't you go tell me some lies? You know, like it's. That's, that's the thing that's really interesting about this movie is that. I, you're I just going to gloss right really over that joke, aren't you? Huh? Wait, what? Where, where I said, hey, Pinocchio, just. Go tell me some lies. Go tell me some lies. Uh, uh, I didn't even pick up on it. That was good. Yeah, man. Nice. <laughs> My hat off for you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm here all night. Um, <laughs> I was trying to think of a plan. I'm just, I'm, it's too late. Um, so, yeah, at its surface, it's really just like a very simple morality tale. It's basically don't tell lies, don't deviate from the path, listen to your parents, or you're going to be kidnapped and sold into slavery. Right. Like that is basically like, it's, it is just an extremely, I mean, it's just, an, it's, it's, it's essentially like what all fairy tales are is it's an extreme. Yeah. I mean, it, it is a classic fairy tale with, yeah, I feel, God, like original Grimm's fairy tales Teach are dark. Spiritual acting straight. Basically, so, yeah. Here, here's the other thing that I wanted to mention about Pinocchio. Everyone is terrible. Jiminy Cricket, who, you know, you gotta love Jiminy, right? Like, with his little chirpy voice. God, he's so and, funny. And, yeah, he's he's got some good lines, and he is amusing. <coughs> and he's a pervert. He, well, see, I don't know if he's a pervert. He is just a very amorous cricket. Uh, he's sure, and, like, he's, he's, like, dancing with that little clockwork lady, and he's like, oh, hey, how's it going? And then he's, like, <laughs> pulling out, he's, like, rubbing his monocle and like really trying to get a good look at those puppets. You're, trying to, you're all over Pinocchio. 
my, my thing about Jiminy is not that he's a pervert, though. My thing about Jiminy is he is supposed to be Pinocchio's conscience. And, like, he even has a song about it, about let your conscience be your guide and just give a little yeah. whistle. And literally the first whistle. thing that he does where he is supposed to be his conscience, he's like, well, well, they love him. I guess he's better off without me. Like, like the first <laughs> thing. And his conscience just is just like, all right, fine. He's just got some real like self like issues with self confidence and like he's like all right well Pinocchio you don't need me anymore you're you've done I've done all I can do what is it that he says there's a hilarious line where he's like what does an actor need with a conscience anyway okay yes that was that was a very funny line however so again like he is a terrible conscience because the entire time he's just kind of like well fine if that's what you're gonna like he he leaves him at Pleasure Island. Because he's like, well, fine. If you'd rather be friends with Lampwick, then fine. Just go on and turn yourself into a donkey. Like, he keeps yeah. leaving him. He is a terrible conscience. Jiminy Cricket. He's very negligent. Jiminy Cricket does not deserve his gold badge at the end, is all that I'm saying. He's a terrible conscience. Uh, Geppetto is. He, he was, he's basically like, maybe he's doing like a Dumbledore thing where he deliberately puts Pinocchio in horrible situations no. to see how he'll act. No. <laughs> No, Jim Cricket is horrible. Just as just as Jim, horrible as Dumbledore. Jiminy Cricket is worse than Dumbledore because at least Dumbledore has foresight. Jiminy Cricket is just like, oh wow, just, they they, they like him. Dumb. I guess I guess they don't need me. Uh, Geppetto, it's so sad though. Like, oh, Geppetto is potentially a little bit more like a Geppetto with wanting a <laughs> real boy. <laughs> and. <laughs> Oh man! And, and he's, the, he's, just, he's an old hermit. He's alone. He needs some company. He doesn't need Nothing. a little boy. And the fact I just, he whatever. is making like he's a toy maker, right? So he's yep, got, he's, yeah. he's making a. That's yeah. He's a crazy old person. That's of, fine. But the fact the fact that he uh, the fact that he makes Pinocchio and then yeah, like instantly sends him off to school, and then. I just like he's just bad at things and like Pinocchio is also kind of horrible. No, I mean he's more just naive, but there is one Pinocchio is annoying. There's one like nagging plot hole in this movie that really gets me, and it's the fact that he escapes from Pleasure Island and never mentions it again. Like at no point does he ever like stop and be like, Hey, um, by the way, <laughs> There's this guy who is kidnapping kids and selling them into, turning them into donkeys and selling them into, dude, the scene with Alexander, the donkey, where he's like, I want my mama. Oh my God. It broke my heart a little. Saddest thing that has ever been committed to film. Like it is, it is like basically that one scene is like sitting through the entirety of Schindler's list in terms of like how much it devastates you emotionally. That scene might be why I'm not going to let my kids watch it until they are much older. Oh no, it is horrifying. Oh Oh my gosh. It just, it wrecks me. Yeah. Oh my God. It like, I almost cried a little bit when, when I watched it. Okay. So maybe Geppetto isn't like the worst, but he's at least negligent. Um, Pinocchio is just insanely annoying. I hate every word that comes out of his mouth. (laughs) However, uh, a part that does always make me laugh is at the end when Geppetto thinks that Pinocchio is dead 
and he's like, Geppetto, I'm right here. Just no, no, you're not. You're dead. Lie down. <laughs> <laughs> I love that is like a joke that shouldn't work, but does is the way that um, like Geppetto is constantly like he'll hear Pinocchio say something and just be completely oblivious to his presence at the same. Like, it's so funny. Yeah. The, the part at the end when he's like, no, no, you're dead, Pinocchio. That it, it made me laugh. Um, I will say though, this is an incredible movie overall. Though, like as for like, it is so good. It's, I think there's a re- like Pinocchio has kind of the same reputation as Citizen Kane on the animation front. Like, it's often considered to be the greatest animated movie of all time, or at least the greatest like Disney film of all time. And wrong, that's uh, it, Disney's Robin Hood is obviously the greatest movie of all time. You know, I have never seen Disney's Robin Hood, dude. <clears throat> Nathan, there's a reason why I'm watching Disney movies for every episode of this of this series because I've never seen I've never seen Bambi, I've never seen Dumbo, yeah, I've never seen yeah. Sleeping Beauty, I've never seen yeah. Modern One Dalmatians, never seen Robin Hood, I've never seen Sword in the Stone. I've never I like <sighs> most of the classic. Never seen Lady of the Tramp. I've I don't know what it was, but as a kid, I basically just watched Toy Story, Lion King, Aladdin, and Little Mermaid. Like those, that was my Disney. Because you you were much younger than I. Um, all the ones that you listed of like I've never seen this one or this one or this one. Robin Hood and Sword in the Stone, Definites, Sleeping Beauty. Yeah, there's some good stuff in there. Uh, the other one, yeah, you're, you're fine without them. It's it's fine. Just watch some clips online. You'll be fine. You don't need the entire movie. I'm watching the whole movie. I love these, like, these. I still feel like, like watching Pinocchio is such a magical experience. I mean, it's horrifying, but also just the animation itself is so incredible. The way they use all these different techniques. They have like the, I love the multiplane technology that allows them to like zoom into the village in that one shot where it's like they just put a whole bunch of different um, drawings on separate planes so that way it allows them to kind of move them move through them as if it's a 3d environment like there's just something about hand-drawn animation that is truly extraordinary to me and will never cease to like fill me with wonder and, and awe so i i have a potential explanation of what world pinocchio lives in okay. he he might live in oz because yeah. isn't isn't the name of uh the the fairy the twinkle star fairy isn't her name glinda is it i thought she was just like the blue fairy yeah but i I thought she had a name like i thought that her name was glinda wasn't it i don't know i can't remember you know what she is though the the model who plays the who did the because they like the interesting thing about these classic disney animated movies too is they actually shot them live action so that way they could use those as a template for the drawing but specifically for the fairy she was rotoscoped, um, so they just drew over over the uh, live image of her. Um, anyway, the model that they used for the fairy is the same model that they used for the like Columbia TriStar woman who like oh. holds up the torch. So she's that. <laughs> so maybe sure. I don't know if that do anything or lends I... any kind of credence to your theory, but that's. That's what she definitely is. Well, I thought that her name was Glenda, and I could just be misremembering that. Uh, and if so, then wasn't that also the name of the Good Witch in Oz? Yeah, yeah. it is. Yeah. So I, I think that she is the Good Witch from Oz, and Oz already has enough weird things going on. So yeah, why not have <laughs> sure. some little boy made of wood and 
a, a, a whale that a whale with a weird digestive system. I don't understand it. It's like he wasn't even in the like they basically just treated the inside of the whale as if it was a cavern. Yeah. Like Geppetto was fine there. He had plenty of fish. He was he was good. Pinocchio <laughs> didn't yeah, need to save him. Good life. Oh, oh man, I cannot believe we've gotten this far without talking about Figaro. Oh the cat. yeah, the the cat that yeah, also lives in a world. The most where adorable thing that has ever happened. You you mean the cat that lives in a world where a fox can talk but not a cat? Like it, yeah, I feel like there's a little I bit mean, of uh, Pluto and. Um, uh, uh, what's the other dog goofy a little bit of pluto and goofy going on where one dog yeah, can talk the figaro other one can't so adorable man the way that figaro gets up in bed with geppetto and like covers up and wears a little hat is just <laughs> you need that little bit of lightness in there to like <laughs> to offset all of the horrible things that, that happens to Tokyo. <laughs> He should have Anywho. eaten the fish. All right. Anywho. I don't know how much Incredible more we need to say about Pinocchio other than the fact that everyone in there is kind of terrible and it's going to be traumatizing for kids. Also, the actor who played Geppetto was a real life Nazi sympathizer. Oh, well, see, then that it fits right into our uh, post-war, mid-war movie things. Yep. Uh, so there, there are three more movies that I would like to talk about. One of them, okay. I, I, I say three, uh, one of those is just the rest of the Wolfman movies and the other <laughs> two are just kind of like briefly mentioning in terms of, you know what? People should check these out. Um, but are, are there other movies that you would like to also talk about so that we do not turn this into a four hour podcast? I did want to mention a little bit. Kind of, kind of in tandem, um, I did kind of a double feature of The Great Dictator and Rome Open City. Uh-huh. Um, it's very much a pre-World War II film. One's very much a post-World War II film, but they tackle very similar topics in a way. Um, and then I watched three film noir, films noir. I don't know what the plural of that is. Um, three these, noir films. Three noir films, yeah. Uh, which would be The Lady from Shanghai, directed by Orson Welles, Um, Double Indemnity, which I'd watched for the first time, and it was just fantastic. You you should have just watched that one twice. I should have, yeah. I've done a double double feature. (laughs) A double 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 indemnity. Quadruple indemnity. Um, Man, that's such a great, that's such a good movie. Um, And then I rewatched Out of the Past, which is my favorite, personal favorite noir film uh, Isn't with that Robert the one Bitt- with uh, Brendan Fraser <laughs> I uh, I see <laughs> a mashup of blast from out of the past <laughs> with Brendan Fraser teaming up with Robert Mitchum to solve uh, yeah, Andrew if you're listening get on that <laughs> he's our official editor um, <laughs> <laughs> I also had one movie that He's we our briefly... turn our stupid ideas into something. Exactly. Um, man, I watched a ton of movies. So um, the other movie that we had briefly discussed um, doing an entire episode on was Isle of the Dead with yes. uh, Boris Karloff, which is um, a film from 1945, I believe. Um, I think it said about... 48, but I could be wrong. Maybe it's 48. I don't know. I can't remember. They're all... They all blur together at this point. Um, directed by Mark Robson, who is the assistant editor on Citizen Kane. 
Um, oh man, it's it's a Val Luton film that's basically about people who are stranded on an island during a pandemic, and it's a movie that I had never heard of before, not that I recall at least. Um, that came on Turner Classic Movies, and because of the fact that we are literally in the middle of a pandemic, I was like, Ooh. and it had Boris Karloff in, and I was like, oh, I've got to check this one out, and it kind of blew me away, and it is one of the scarier movies, scarier horror movies from the 40s, I've ever, from this period, I should yeah, say. I, I hate that I did not have a chance to watch this one, because... It's, it truly is incredible. Of, of yeah. all the ones that you <clears throat> watched that I did not have a chance to, that you talked about, that was the only one... <clears throat> excuse me that I was like, Ooh man, I need to see that movie, but I had too many other movies. So I didn't feel like renting it. I'd like, I'd like to do a full episode on it. Um, cause it really is. spectacular. Oh, I, and, I mean, like I've said with just about every movie that we talk about, I'd like to do full episodes, uh, on, on just all, about of all of them. <laughs> it's just a matter of finding the, uh, the time and the theme. I know, man. Um, I also, man, I watched so many movies. I watched a matter of life and death. Um, which was a fantastic uh, fantasy film about a man who um, was supposed to have died but got lost in the... He was he, he basically was an airman who was in a plane crash um, in one of the most spectacular opening scenes in a movie I've ever seen. Um, and um, he was supposed to be sent to heaven or to the afterlife, in, which is depicted beautifully in this movie um but they lost him in the um horrible english climate because it was very foggy <laughs> which is so I funny <laughs> um and while they were trying to fix their mistake he ends up falling in love with this woman who was actually the last person he spoke to when he was alive and then it ends up becoming kind of this like courtroom drama that is sort of taking place all in his head because he may actually have just suffered some kind of concussion um it's very um it's very much like it's a wonderful life in a way. Sure, it has some incredible Technicolor photography, just beautiful miniatures. It's an it's an extraordinary movie that really kind of blew me away. Um, but that's about all I'm going to say about that one because it's that's one that I can't even really start to get into. But um, love that movie. Check it out. Um, the only, I think the only other movie I watched was The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Which is another one that is just like it's been a, a blind spot for a long time. It's a movie that I felt like I had to watch. Uh, I wanted to get a Humphrey Bogart movie in there. The only other one I was I was thinking about doing the Maltese Falcon, but I had already seen a few other films noir, um, <laughs> or films, whatever. So I'm, so I'm like I'm just going to focus on this other Humphrey Bogart movie and. You know that noir films are not attorney generals, right? Like they're not attorneys <laughs> general. I like saying films more. It sounds. It makes me sound intelligent. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Or stupid. I don't know. Yeah, it's can, fun to say. You can log those films noir on your letterbox D. <clears throat> letterbox D. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Church of the Sierra Madre, fantastic movie. Uh, <clears throat> Humphrey Bogart gives an extraordinary performance that was so not what I expected because at this point he was kind of the biggest movie star in the world and he ends up using his clout as the biggest movie star in the world to play just like a horribly pathetic villain kind of character, which I was not expecting at all because apparently his character in that movie was the inspiration for Indiana Jones in some ways. And <laughs> it's, it was not the movie I was expecting it to be, but um, it's a really fantastic like movie about <clears throat> how greed can, how greed and like toxic masculinity can corrupt 
men and it's, yeah, it's incredible. Oh, so um, it's a, a modern movie then. Yeah. I mean, it feels like it, it really <laughs> does. That's, that's the, I think that's what really separates a lot of these, the 40s films that are really good that kind of stand the test of time. They feel so timeless movies like citizen Kane, you know, he's such a larger than life figure that that movie's always going to feel relevant in some way. Treasure of the Sierra Madre is getting at some very universal themes about greed and the way that that can corrupt you and drive men to do horrible things. And, um, and it's also about kind of like the immigrant experience in reverse. Like it, Humphrey Bogart is an American immigrant in Mexico and, um, it's got some kind of noirish styles to it, but it's also a bit of a Western and, um, well, and like, here's one of the things, and I was thinking about this more so about the, um, the fifties, uh, episode that we're going to do where part of the reason that some of the thing, I mean, obviously there are some just themes of humanity that are always going to be there. I mean, you go back to old Greek mythology and you get stuff like greed and hubris. And so, yeah, there's going to be some themes that are just mm-hmm. always going to be present. <clears throat> but um, the movies that people watched in the 40s and 50s, some of those people are still alive today. Like, mm-hmm. my dad was born in the 40s. So yeah. some of the movies that I watched, he might have watched as a kid. Uh, when we start getting into the fifties and start watching like a lot of giant monster movies, like those are movies that he watched when he was a kid. And yeah, my folks are like a lot older than uh, most other parents of people my age, but like, yeah, there, there are still old people that grew up watching the movies that are from the forties and fifties. And Mm -hmm. so I think that sometimes that's why they seem maybe a little bit more relevant than, than what they might, than what you might think they would be. Cause you're like, Oh, that was 80 years ago. Like how, how could something 80 years old still be relevant? It's like, well, because the people that are still alive who were influenced by those movies are still having an impact on the generation below them. So we're not that far removed from them. And I I think that's been one of the weirdest things. And I'll probably uh, mention this when we get to our end of the year, um, uh, end of our history of cinema episode, Uh, watching movies from a decade per month really makes the history of cinema not seem like it's that long. Like, it, I know, yeah. I mean, it, and and to be fair, it really is like the youngest medium there is, other than maybe video games, which I think they're still kind of like. There's a weird thing where people still debate whether or not video games are art. Um, but but yeah, like it's it, relatively speaking, it is a very young medium. Yeah, like. It, it it is it is so weird to me and part of it is because we are going through a decade a month and so it's like oh wait a second like i i need to start pulling out some 60s <clears throat> movies because i'm <clears throat> very bad about waiting until the end to find movies to watch uh so as i was going through trying to find some of the ones that i needed to watch like citizen kane i was just like oh yeah this one's from 50s or 60s let me go ahead and put these to the side um <clears throat> And, and I was definitely thinking fifties, but then it kind of dawned on me. The sixties are only like, like a a month from now, I need to start watching the sixties movies. And that's just, it's just weird to me because I feel like we just started doing this and 
it just i don't know it it throws the the whole sense of time off a little bit to have everything so condensed um for sure but it's also fun that to could be able to go through it in such a such a quick way like to be able to watch these movies so close together because you can draw so many parallels between them like like i watched stagecoach last month I didn't really get to talk about it a lot, but Stagecoach was the basically... <laughs> it's because we were only talking about Universal Monsters and Marx Brothers. I know. Well, and it's funny because Stagecoach was the basically Orson Welles' film school for Citizen Kane. Like, he reportedly watched that movie 40 times, and would every time he would watch it, he would, like, bring in a new collaborator to talk about, like, hey, how did they do this, and why did they do this in that movie? And you can see, like, watching Citizen Kane, like, I can really see that influence on the film in a lot of interesting ways. Um, and so it's, it's, that's one of the things I love about doing this weird little experiment is like seeing so many of those parallels and just seeing the progression of the art form. But, yeah. But yeah. yeah I, no, think- I, I, I love, <laughs> <I've>, <laughs> I'll try not to die. Uh, yeah, no, I've, I've loved the uh, just sort of powering through. And even though I've not been watching nearly as many great movies from the decade, sometimes it's just, mm. eh, I have this movie. Sure. I'll watch that one. Right. Um, like it, it still is giving me, I, I think a much broader sense of cinema, even though I've always loved it. It's, sure, yeah. it's just kind of changing <laughs> how I think about it a little bit. Yeah, for sure. I love that you mentioned Greek tragedy because one thing I've been thinking about a lot today um, after watching all those noir films was that film noir is kind of like the American version of a Greek tragedy in a way. Like it is very for one thing, because it's like pulled from all other cultures because that's what America is. <laughs> sure. We steal from things and, and try to improve on them in some way. Um, but also just like how much it deals with like fate and um, especially watching out of the past. I think that's the one that really sticks out to me the most is like, it's so, it feels so tragic, but so inevitable. Like all of the characters know that you, all of their actions are going to lead to their death in some way, but they still like can't stop doing it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's one of the things that I definitely love about noir films is the, the fact that like there is that moral ambiguity. So even the quote unquote good guys are still doing those bad things or those gray things. And uh, there's that like not really fatalism, but more of a, I, I don't know, more of a sense of um, just that existential are what we're doing really uh, important. Like, do our decisions really matter? Uh, do the things that we do have an impact on on the broader scope? And and so I love the fact that uh, that with film noir, you get more of that uh, debate. You get some of those darker themes. Um, and I was trying to think of, <clears throat> excuse me, I was trying to think of how. Not how, but what um, what modern movies fill that fill that space, and I kind of think horror movies, at least some of them, um, that might not be the best because horror movies were also horror movies in the forties. But like I was thinking about uh, with westerns, those were sort of the uh, like the older superhero movies. So you know, like you watched cowboy movies, and that. 
it, it has a lot of the same feeling as like watching a Marvel movie now, just in terms of they're impossibly good with the gun and the good guys are ultra good and the bad guys are like just so villainous and vile and a very strict, this is what is good and this is what is right. Uh, and, and relating that, you know, to like Superman and, and people like that. Um, yeah. So, so I've got three... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh no, no. Go ahead. I was just gonna jump in. The I was just three. thinking, like that's what's int- what's most interesting about this this decade in particular is it does feel like it's getting so much further away from very those black and white morals as much as they can with you know the censors because they always had to have n- not necessarily happy endings, but the the bad people always had to get what's coming to them in the end. And um, but like I love the way that in like film noir and a lot of these war films they try to. <clears throat> they're they're a bit more nihilistic and they're a bit more ambiguous in terms of morality and dealing with, or you know, even like in Citizen Kane, you're dealing with unsympathetic kinds of characters. Yeah, well, and like I, you know, with the the bad guy has to die in the end. I mean, that was a thing with horror movies. Uh, is the monster always had to die? It doesn't matter how sympathetic they were, and that to me, even though the attempt. It was an attempt to show that um, that like Hollywood is not trying to uh, to glorify the quote unquote villain, or that Hollywood is not condoning the monstrous acts of these monsters by saying, you know, evil will be uh, triumphant in the end, will be triumphed, not will triumph. Uh, you know, like yes, good will always come out the victor in in these horror movies with these giant monstrous people. Except for the fact that most of the Universal Monster movies, not even most, all of the Universal Monster movies were so tragic that, like, for me at least, I feel for the monster. Yeah, they're doing bad things, but, uh, like, most of them are just lonely and Mm. misunderstood, and they're only acting out because of the way that society treats them, and... And to say, oh, well, you are different and misunderstood, therefore, if you die... Uh, right is right. It just feels so uh, relevant to the way that people treat minorities. And it's mm. just... Man, for a me. second there, it sounds like you're making an argument that Citizen Kane could be a, a universal monster. <laughs> he, <laughs> he almost fits the bill in a way. That's why it starts off looking like a horror movie. Yeah, he almost could. Almost. 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 Uh, so, speaking of Universal Monsters, two really quick ones that I want to mention before we dive into talking about the Wolfman movies, because <laughs> I, I feel like both of us are running low on uh, time and energy. Uh, I just want to mention The Stranger, which is another Orson Welles film where he is a uh, a Nazi living in America. And has like taken on a completely new identity, destroyed everything about his past. Um, but a war crimes investigator has found him and is trying to prove that he is the terrible person that he is. And uh, similar to Citizen Kane, the majority of time is spent with Orson Welles. So he is the quote unquote protagonist. 
in the sense that he is the main character, but he is very much the antagonist, not even like a gray area like uh, in Citizen Kane, where it's like, well, I mean, like, is he that bad or is he just tragic or no? In uh, in The Stranger, he is just a straight up Nazi and but like like hiding it and that absolutely plays into that larger theme of not knowing who to trust and not trusting the government and not trusting uh, um, people with money and not trusting just your, your neighbor and the sort of like the red scare of, Oh, this person could be a communist or this person could be a fascist or, Uh and it, it was a really good movie. It, I don't think it's the best Orson Welles film. Um, It's, Mm not even really a film noir. it's more of just i don't know what it is because it's not a um it's not a war movie it's like, it's like a spy thriller kind of in a I way d- <laughs> but like not even it's more of it almost films sounds like a bit like a film noir because out of the past kind of the uh the plot is that it starts off with robert mitchum as like a a humble gas station attendant and you <laughs> out that he used to be a detective and he double crossed this mobster and like basically it's a person from his past finds him and he ends up getting sucked back in kind of thing and that almost feels like the stranger way because it's he was a nazi and he tried to create this whole new life for himself but then you know his past comes back to haunt him oh no he's still like very much a nazi he's just hiding it uh, oh, okay okay maybe yeah, okay, no yeah, it's, it's, it, he's he's not like um reformed he is still a Nazi. Like at one point he's talking on the payphone and he's just scribbling on the little pad of paper and he draws a swastika and then like, you know, mm. keeps drawing around it so that it doesn't look like he drew a swastika. No, he is still very much a Nazi. Like it is, I guess, technically a film noir, but it feels it feels like a very bright film noir. So it doesn't have some of the same visuals of noir. <laughs> It has a lot of gotcha, the themes, yeah. but like I, I think that that's part of why it feels off somehow because it's mm-hmm. it's it's almost I it's weird like it it is noir, but also not somehow I don't mm-hmm. know. Uh, the other one that I wanted to mention is the Outlaw, um, produced by Howard Hughes. Oh, produced and directed. Sorry, uh, the Outlaw by Howard Hughes with Jane Russell. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it has Jack Butel as Billy the Kid and Walter Houston as Doc Holliday. And it's it, it's fun. Um, <laughs> the, the plot doesn't really matter, but Doc Holliday comes into town. He's friends with the sheriff. And then Billy the Kid comes into town and steals Doc Holliday's horse. And uh, over the course of things... Billy the Kid and Doc Holliday end up becoming friends. And then um, Billy the Kid gets shot. Major spoilers, by the way, but who cares? It's <laughs> on an 80-year-old movie. It's just, yeah. Uh, Billy the Kid gets shot. Doc Holliday takes him back to his his ranch where, uh, his, where Doc Holliday's woman is. And then she ends up falling in love with Billy the Kid. And... And I think that they get married because she has sex with him to keep him alive. Like, um, okay. <laughs> Billy, because the kid you couldn't was, do that. You, you had to get married. To Billy be able the, to yeah. Like that's the that thing is at that time, Billy, the kid was, he was shot and he was going cold and she was all like, I know how to keep him warm. 
and her aunt <laughs> was there and like, no, no, you can't do that. Blah, 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 blah. Just like call the priest in the morning if it'll make you feel better. And then later she talks about how she's married, but Billy the Kid doesn't know it. And so, yeah, I think the assumption there is uh, she banged him back to life. And because it, <laughs> because it was the olden times, that means they are now married. Um, Sounds like a Howard Hughes movie. <laughs> yep. But, but yeah, it's Doc Holliday and Billy the Kid, and they are friends, but also the driving plot of the movie, and I'm not kidding about this, and it sounds dumb, but I love it so much. They're fighting over the horse the entire time. Like, <laughs> they are frenemies throughout the entire movie because they keep trying to get that horse back. They don't even care about the girl. They don't care about Jane Russell. They care about the horse. Sounds great. And it is legitimately a lot of fun. Uh, mm. Some of the banter back and forth, I feel like was an inspiration for uh, Maverick with Mel Gibson and, um, uh, oh crap, why am I drawing a blank on his name? The guy that- James originally- Garland? Yes, James Garland. All right, uh, Garland, is is it Garner? It's Garner, isn't it? Garner, Garner, yeah. yeah. Uh, so Garner. a lot of the banter between Doc Holliday and Billy the Kid feels like James Garner and uh, and Mel Gibson. And it's it's funny. It's not necessarily good, but I had a good time with it. And um, yeah, at, at one point, uh, spoilers, but again, whatever, 80 years old, who cares? Um, you know how like in old Westerns, people get shot and they just kind of like clutch their chest and fall over. Yeah. Well, at one point, uh, Billy, the kid gets shot in the ear and you see like a close up of his ear, like exploding, like oh, just, wow. just a little part of it doesn't like fully explode, but yeah, like that part of his ear just gets shot away. And I was like, wait, what? I, huh? I did not expect to see even that amount on, on this movie. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's good. It's worth checking out. It's, it's fun. It's not great, but it's fun. <laughs> it's, nice. it's no Emmerich Godzilla, but it's fun. And that brings <laughs> us to the Wolfman movies, which again, God, what all did I see? Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, House of Dracula, uh, House of Frankenstein, the Wolfman, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, and I think that was it. I think just those five. Oh yeah, I also watched Grapes of Wrath. It's a great movie. It's heartbreaking. I love it. It is an Grapes incredibly Wrath, yeah. solid movie. That uh, it was. Great. It was hard Henry to watch Honda, at times. Yeah, it really is, man. And that's the part, that should have been the movie we started with, probably since it's actually about like the Great Depression. That would have made more sense. It would have made sense, but yeah, Grapes of Wrath is fantastic. Yeah, well, it does tie in to the uh, Universal Monster movies because John Carradine, who plays the preacher in Grapes of Wrath, ends up getting killed, and I think he then turns into Count Dracula in the uh, the Wolfman movies. <laughs> oh no! Maven. Yes, yes. That is so funny. <laughs> <laughs> that is you've taken this beginning, middle, end thing too far to connect the Grapes of Wrath with. <laughs> <laughs> sorry go ahead no no like it totally makes sense because you know he he was a preacher and he was losing his way and he didn't fully understand what you know what was and what wasn't and he he didn't feel like he could be a preacher anymore but he was still trying to do right and then he gets killed 
And so he's still trying to do right, which is why the movies where he plays Dracula, like he's, he's a good Dracula. He feels charming and not quite so evil. Um, but he also understands the evil of man and understands that, you know, sometimes you, you have to kind of bite a person or two. Um, <laughs> I'm just saying he's a good Dracula and I loved his character in Grapes of Wrath. Yeah, he's a great actor, John Carradine. Yeah. Also good in Stagecoach. Yeah, I didn't watch Stagecoach. <laughs> Stagecoach <laughs> going to keep popping up. Also directed by John Ford, who directed The Grapes of Wrath. So here's the thing about uh, all of the Wolfman movies and the plot of Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. <clears throat> <sighs> Which is non-canon. Right, because don't they all? Like- um, I say that it is canon because the the monsters play it very seriously. Uh, Bela Lugosi returns as Count Dracula. He's- well, it's not canon in that it doesn't pick up where the uh, what was the last one? Oh. It doesn't pick up where the story left off in a uh, half. Was it has yeah. House of Frankenstein the last? Here's one? the thing: none of the stories really <clears throat> line up. Like the the original Universal monster movies are about as linear as the um uh friday the 13th movies where mm-hmm. it's like yeah I guess that is true because they all die they always die at the end but they still come back in the sequels. yeah it's like yes technically they're sequels and they try to shoehorn in some sort of explanation as to how this keeps happening but like they're they're different actors which you know excusable but like they're always adding some sort of additional explanation and like just trying to find some way as to why they're still alive because like uh yeah in one of them and i don't even remember at this point uh no no it's in um frankenstein meets the wolfman yeah where at the end of it frankenstein frankenstein's monster and the wolfman are fighting and they like burst through the wall of the castle and they get swept away by this river and you think oh obviously both of them are now dead but then in the next one which i think is house of frankenstein the uh the mad doctor person uh is trying to find frankenstein's book to bring people back to life to kill other people these these plots make no sense whatsoever. But like oh he gosh, then man. finds an underground cave with like this frozen ice land and frozen in the ice is Frankenstein's monster and the Wolfman. And like, oh well yes, this obviously they must have uh, been brought here by the river and then frozen for some strange reason, even though it's not frozen on top. It's just the 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 through lines trying to connect these movies are dumb. You cannot watch them <laughs> in any sort of oh this movie obviously leads into this one, right? Even though they try to make that happen, and I love them. I love every single one of the Universal monster movies that I watched. They are so mm-hmm. much fun. They were the bright spot in this month, and I just ah uh, every single time like I almost rewatched a few of them just because I love them so much. Um, they they get a bit repetitive. Like they're all sort of this crazy person yeah. wants to bring back Frankenstein's monster, and <laughs> in doing so, somehow they have to also bring back Dracula to help out. 
but then they uh, also inadvertently bring back the Wolfman, and uh, Lawrence Talbot just hates his life and wants to die, and so every single movie that he's in, he just gets even sadder and even more like, I just want to die, and yeah. then bad things happen, uh, some bad stuff happens to the good people, and then all of the monsters die by the end, and good reigns once again until the next movie where the exact that same was, thing happens. That was what was so funny about Costello. Was like, first of all, it was such a brilliant place to play all the monsters straight. Like, oh yeah, to, like it is just Abbott and Costello happened to stumble into an actual Universal monster movie. <laughs> I the, love it. A damn bit of sense though, because like Dracula needs to get a new brain. For Frankenstein's monster because yes. he wants to make sure that he has absolute control yes. despite the fact that he has absolute control over Frankenstein's monster. Yes. Entirely. And the fact that he has and absolute control over people when he just hypnotizes them. When he hypnotizes them, yeah. It doesn't make a damn bit of sense. But yes. it's so fun. And, but the thing that really was strange to me was was uh, Lon Chaney. He's so great as Lawrence Talbot. But like, there's something that is so profoundly sad about that character and in particular in Abbott and Costello, because like he does have kind of that like suicidal aspect to him, but in this one he still has a purpose. Like he's basically the Van Helsing character. Yes. The one who's trying to stop Dracula. Um and yeah, he, his his character I, I I just love what they do with him a lot. Although he also feels very like non essential. Like it does <laughs> kind of shoehorn him into it and like he just randomly shows up whenever they need to get in contact with Dracula in some way. But anyway, um, at least, at least with Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, at least each of the monsters, like they, they do feel like they make a little bit more sense. Um, yeah. Wolfman might've been a little pointless, but he did have a little bit more of a role. He does. Yeah. I mean, he gets the, I mean, yeah, the, the ending where all of it leads to in the, yeah, that climax in that movie is really spectacular. It it is one of my favorite Universal monster movies that I've seen so far. Um, yeah, it God, it it's great. And you know, in our thirties episode, when I was talking about how Bela is the best version of Bela, but not the best version of Dracula, um, mm-hmm. I still hold to that. I tend to prefer John Carradine a little bit more, mm-hmm. but. Uh, Bela Lugosi is much better in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. He is, yeah, he really is. It's it's kind of weird. Um, <laughs> well, he's he's a more fleshed out character who's actually doing things rather than just staring at people. Right. But the the thing that I like about John Carradine is he feels like a more modern version of Dracula. So like when um in in the movies that he was in, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, in the movies that he was in, his Dracula felt like a person that you can actually believe is from that time period yeah with Bela Lugosi even though yes he is iconic and all of those things that make him every bit as wonderful as he is he always felt out of place you know like it was all the very old the very old Transylvanian which just like yeah yes part of that was his actual accent but it always felt odd it always felt like Bela just has a very his acting style is very much at least at that point in the earlier movies it was not nearly as natural as as the other actors in a way like it was a lot more stagey 
Yeah. Kind of part of it. He's a, he's very big and broad, but yeah. And in the first Dracula, that made sense because he was in his old Transylvanian castle and going to a new land. So like it did make sense, but in the rest of them, you know, like trying to portray a more modern character, uh, I tend to prefer John Carradine. Uh, so awesome, man. His transformations are awesome. I just, I just, I was just thinking about <laughs> in the first Dracula movie, you never see him transform, but in this one, they always show it, and they're like these awesome animations. <laughs> He's like a little cartoon it's bat. So bat. Yeah, it's so cute. I also one thing that that I have to mention about Bela is he has a face that was made to be half shrouded by a cloak. <laughs> About the way he holds that cloak over his face where he just looks incredible when half of his face is covered like so interesting and awesome man speaking of having <laughs> his cloak over half of his face uh so abbott and costello not my preferred comedy team um i obviously yeah. marx brothers are my favorite and um and and then you know i i there, there are other things to uh, to love about each of the comedy troops, but you know, Marx Brothers is always going to be my favorite. There is something about Abbott and Costello that, like, yes, it is absolutely dated, but somehow also still holds up. You know, like uh, watching Lou Costello, it it feels like watching Nathan Lane, and yeah, uh-huh. I, yeah I, I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> like, there were times where I was like, wait, I just. I, I feel like he's impersonating someone rather than the other way around. Like some of it's, the things that he did felt so <laughs> modern. One of my favorite jokes in the entire movie, because it's dumb and perfect and I love it, is uh, when he takes that tablecloth and he's holding it up like Dracula yeah. and he's controlling the <laughs> monster. Yeah. And then he drops it and he's like, he thinks I'm Dracula. <laughs> it's just so. <laughs> It's also funny when he grabs that tablecloth because he pulls it off of a table and all of the items on the table stay on there, like that whole bit. And like, he kind of pauses for a minute to admire his work. He's like, oh, cool. Like, he just that to um, I, I love it when he skips around. It's just. It, Luke Costello is great. The, the whole bit with like his, with, um, with uh, Abbott, but Abbott, not, I can't remember their names in the movies, but. Um, uh, Chick, uh, Chicken Wilbur. Chicken Wilbur, that's right, yeah. So, like, the way that uh, Chick is Abbott, right? No, I don't remember. I can't, yeah, I can't. I th- I but anyway, so. his his whole, like, incredulity at the fact that um, Lou keeps getting all the women on his side, like, is so funny. It's, it's really, like, whatever, it's not the best straight man, but that bit that he does is very funny, like, where he just cannot believe all these women falling for Lou. Um, <laughs> it is a pretty great line when uh, with the whole like okay you got two women why don't you share them with me and uh, and Luke Costello is like you know I, I share things with you if I got two pair of shoes what do I do you know you, you give them to me if I got <laughs> uh, two cigarettes what do you do you give them to me so then what are you going to do when you have two women tell you put on your shoes and go for a walk and have a smoke <laughs> there's a lot of good, good little one thing that's funny is like it's basic. This movie is basically the same joke told over and over again. Yes. It's basically Lou sees something scary and starts hyperventilating. Yes. And he tells Abbott, but Abbott about it, and but Abbott doesn't believe him. Yes. And then it just happens over and over again, but it's still funny almost every single time. <laughs> like I think the the first part with Dracula in his casket goes on maybe a like 
one time too many. But um, all of the other ones, like, it's so funny how well that they managed to pull it off over and over again. And, uh, yeah, he's, uh, well, I mean, it, they're, like, I'm with you. They're not my favorite comedic group, but they fit very well into this. And they, they managed to make the most of of the situations. And they also, like, this really is one of the best storylines. Mm-hmm. You know, like, after watching House of Dracula and House of Frankenstein and Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, and, like, after watching all of these other ones, they started to feel kind of stale. They started to feel like almost the exact same plot every single time. I still love them. That is not mm-hmm. a, a complaint. I will still watch the hell out of every single one of those movies. Just probably not as back-to-back-to-back as I've been watching them over the last few weeks, but with uh, Abbott and Costello, and and maybe it's just because of the comedic aspect, but it felt different enough that it really did feel like a, a, uh, a, a new movie all its own that wasn't poking fun at the monsters. And like yeah. it, it had a plot that made sense. Yes, it was dumb. Why did they need his brain if Dracula already has control? But it also made sense. And uh, like this one to me felt the closest to, uh, to the monster squad because of yeah. things like Dracula controlling the monster and the monster saying things like, yes, master. And uh, the Wolfman like getting himself locked up. Like I, I, I feel like Monster Squad, if it took inspiration from any of the Universal Monsters, probably took the most from Abbott and Costello uh, meet Frankenstein because it is just so many things about it are uh, directly directly related to Monster Squad. Um, God, I, I feel like there was... Oh, oh uh, one, the last thing that I wanted to mention, mm-hmm. it's, it's such a tangent, but I feel like, I don't know, somehow matters. The fact that all of these mashup monster movies where they would uh, promote the monsters that are in them starring mm-hmm. the people that it's starring, but not always playing the same people so like um boris karloff is in house of frankenstein he does not play the monster he plays a different person and it's like it's just so misleading to be house of frankenstein with uh with boris karloff (laughs) p.s he's not the monster yeah his character is great like i'm so glad that he wasn't the monster because oh man i i uh or his character in uh, in House of Frankenstein. He's, he is a terrible, horrible, evil, vile human being that uh, obviously gets his comeuppance at the end. Yeah, but in of terms of just so just creepy Karloff, oh, it's so good. I love it. Love it so much. Um, so I did about all point I have. That uh, I love Lenore Albert, who plays Sandra in um, Abbott and Costello. <laughs> She ends up being like the best villain in the movie. She upstages most of the monsters. She's so awesome in that movie. Um, I just wanted to point that out. And she also has like one of the best deaths whenever she gets thrown through that window. Oh, right. Um, which also, which I meant to mention this. Um, Lon Chaney plays the monster in that scene because I don't remember exactly what happened with Glenn Strange. I think he was injured or something and couldn't do it. But in that one scene in particular, Lon Chaney is actually playing the monster. Hmm. Um, but yeah, like that, she's, she's just really great. Like I love how, how commanding she is over all of the other people and like how manipulative she gets to be. Like she's just, she's fantastic. Yeah. Um, It is a great movie through and through. 
Evan Costello was a really nice palate cleanser for all of these other movies that were a lot darker and in some cases very depressing. Um, oh man, I didn't even talk about my World War II double feature. Oh yeah. Over that entirely. <laughs> well, you started talking about them, but I think we got sidetracked a little bit. I know. I, well, I was like, all right, I'm going to come back to that. Let me just briefly mention these other movies and then, yeah. Um, <laughs> do do you have any, did you have anything else on the monsters? Uh, they're great. I love them. Um, oh, if you've never seen it, this doesn't relate to the movies other than just, uh, again, a tangent. Several years ago on Adult Swim, there used to be uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenhole, and if you oh, have if you have I'm never, never oh my god, it was uh, it was stop motion, uh, almost like uh, like paper puppets sort of, and uh, Frankenstein and um, oh what's the what's the other doctor in Bride of Frankenstein? Why do I keep drawing a blank on his name? Oh, it's um, Pretorius. Yes. So, uh, so Doctor Frankenstein and Pretorius and Frankenstein's wife um, have all drunk this immortality potion, so they are immortal. And <laughs> Frankenstein has two kids that he also gave their. Wait, no. Did he give the immortality potion to them? He might not have. Uh, I, I don't think that. I can't remember if he did or not, but. Uh, Pretorius and Frankenstein and his wife are all in their, you know, thirties. Uh, but then they have like 80 year old kids, but they still act like little children. Mm. And the entire movie or the movie, the entire show is about these wormholes where people either travel to Dr. Frankenstein or Frankenstein travels to them to like somehow get them to solve their problems. And it was a very smart and very dark show and um it was adult swim so obviously there's going to be some jokes that are very much not appropriate for children either because of uh just the the violence or uh the sexuality like yes they're little paper puppets but there's more than a fair amount of nudity um but there's one in particular where lawrence talbot is trying to find sweet release from his hell and it keeps showing all the different ways that he dies and it's just it's it's a really sad show but also very funny and very smart and do not watch it with your kids sounds like i should check it out you totally should um okay so i just wanted to briefly mention i have to i have to talk about the great dictator because it is one of the defining movies of the era and also i love charlie chaplin as evidenced by every other episode of this series that we've done. <laughs> and I have to mention this too, because this will probably be the last time I talk about him because I don't think that I'm going to watch a Chaplin film in the fifties. We might end up talking about the Chaplin movie with Robert Downey Jr. Though. Yeah, that was in the nineties though. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I actually really want to watch that even though I've heard it's kind of whatever. But anyway, um, so the great dictator is so weird to watch after what, watching all of Chaplin's silent films because this is not a silent film. He is not technically playing the tramp, but he looks exactly like the tramp and he speaks and it's very weird. Um, So anyway, um, that's kind of beside the point. So the great dictator is a film where Charlie Chaplin is basically making fun of Adolf Hitler, but it was made in 1940. So it's kind of this fascinating thing where it's almost, it's very prophetic in a way where it's like, 
people were still, even within the United States, it was during the time where, you know, you had kind of like the isolationists who were like, yeah, we don't want to get involved with that. Hitler's not that big of a deal. He's just kind of a kooky dude. He's not really that much of a threat. We're going to let him do whatever. And then, you know, you had people who, like Chaplin, who were like, no, this guy is seriously evil. There's something wrong. We need to stand up to him. And, um, the film it's, it's is, like when uh you know certain people ran for president and because people thought that it was right. so much of a joke there was so much coverage because people were like this is just ridiculous and this but, is exactly yeah. why i want to talk about this movie because the parallels between adenoid hinkle who is charlie chaplin's version of adolf hitler and the great dictator the parallels between him and a certain American world leader are... Are you sure you want to use the word leader? Well, a certain American buffoon. I don't even know. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> the great orange um, buffoon. The parallels are startling. <laughs> um, yep. I, I'm, I'm one of those people who like I tend to not like it when people immediately jump to... Holocaust metaphors and Nazi metaphors in terms of like talking about current politicians. Although my stance on that has changed greatly when, you know, actual Nazis started showing up in our streets. Yep. Um, anyway, I'm going to back step just a minute. So in this movie, Charlie <laughs> plays both Adnoid Hinkle, who is supposed to be Adolf Hitler, and he plays a Jewish barber. And the movie opens with a, a little um, disclaimer that says any resemblance between Hinkle, the dictator, and the Jewish barber is purely coincidental. <laughs> is, um, but basically, he gets to play kind of a very typical kind of tramp character where he, he fought in some world war um, as the Jewish barber, and, but then he gets a concussion and forgets the fact that he fought in the war doesn't and like he gets sent back to his barber shop and doesn't realize that I can't remember what they're called, but basically the Nazis have occupied his country of Tomania. Um, and so he starts like fighting back against them and becomes this kind of like unwitting resistance fighter who has ended up like being persecuted. Um, but I'm trying to even think of there, there's so much to this movie, I don't even know really where to begin. I just want to talk about it in a minute because. I think the most amazing thing about it is the way that Chaplin parodies Hitler. Um, it's it feels so brave and so perfect. Like it's weird to watch it from a modern perspective because like you see scenes of you know these Nazi type people going in and like literally liquidating a ghetto and like you know um, oppressing people and you see. Um, Hinkle doing like horrible things, but also like constantly trying to have his ego stroked. He's constantly surrounding himself with yes men who will literally just agree with everything that he says. And he spends most of his days <laughs> doing absolutely nothing, like manufacturing things to do. Like he, he just runs from one room to the next. And like there's a scene where he runs into a room and there's a guy who is like, hey, we've come up with this bulletproof suit. And then he like grabs a gun and shoots him and he and kills him. And he's like, apparently it's not bulletproof enough. And then he just, that's it. And he just walks into another room to some other inane activity. So he's constantly doing something, but doing nothing at the same time. And probably want to go tweet about it. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty much what it feels like. And um, the thing that's amazing about this performance is he is both 
a horrible, evil person and also a complete moron. Um, yep. And I love that about it because, like, it is... It's making fun of Hitler and saying, like, hey, this guy's an idiot. He is a narcissist. He is an egotistical person. We should not take this guy seriously. But at the same time, we should totally take him seriously because he is capable of true evil. He is cap- He will do whatever he can to advance his position. And he also doesn't, like, let him off the hook for his prejudices against the Jewish people. Like, he does, He does like, his, the Hitler speeches where he is just doing gibberish with some random German words thrown in there and, like, sweating and drinking water and literally pouring water down his <laughs> pants, making it absurd. And then, like, you have an interpreter who's, like, he was just describing the Jewish people. Like, <laughs> like it went all that he was saying, but... Um, I don't know. It's just it's kind of a remarkable performance, I think, because it never lets Hitler off the hook. Like it it makes him a joke, but also takes him seriously at the same time, which I think is exactly the way that it should have been done. They also have a uh, Mussolini stand-in called Napolini, and there's a famous scene where they uh, get into a literal dick measuring contest. <laughs> oh, literal, a metaphorical dick measuring contest. <laughs> I, I was thinking that it was literal. <laughs> well, it's like they get into these barber shop chairs next to each other and they keep like pumping the thing up to get the chairs to go up higher because they're constantly trying to make themselves like taller than the other one. And the yeah. barbershop chairs just keep going higher and higher up to the ceiling. <laughs> There's just so many brilliant little moments like that. Um, and it has, of course, Chaplin's same like love for humanity and like class warfare and like complete stand like um, criticism of authoritarianism and um, it ends with one of the most incredible monologues I've ever seen in a movie that's so inspiring and I've listened to it like four times since I've seen the movie it's just absolutely incredible where he breaks character and is arguing in favor of democracy while dressed as Hitler which is just I don't think it's not my favorite Chaplin film because I think that it is it's too long um, it's two hours. There's a lot of gags in there that are funny, but don't quite fit with the rest of the movie. Um, but overall, like, I think it is just such an incredible, I guess more of an act of protest than anything. Like the things that this movie was like super controversial when it came out because people thought that Chaplin was exaggerating the atrocities of Hitler too much. And then looking at it now, it's almost like, it almost like feels he was toning it down. Yeah. Like it was toned down. Yeah. Um, and anyway, it was the biggest hit of his career. I had to watch it, of course, and it's a fantastic movie. Um, and I love too that it ends in kind of a note of hope. It's like, yeah, this is, you know, we're in a horrible situation, but like we are men and we're, we're human and we will take care of one another. Um, and then the next night after I watched that, I watched Rome Open City, which is a post-World War II film about... It's an Italian neorealist film because I had to get something that was non-Hollywood. <laughs> I wanted <laughs> to watch something that was a foreign film, and this felt perfect because of its proximity to World War II and how much that defined the decade. And um, So basically, it's a film directed by Roberto Rossellini that's about um, Italian resistance fighters during Nazi occupation. Um of Italy, and it felt very relevant to my current situation, to our current situation. With the <laughs> no, it's just your current like, situation. <laughs> well, it, I was thinking about it from personally, like I was feeling sure, sure. The really 
tragic, heartbreaking film that ends in a very, I don't want to say cynical manner, but it, is, it has a very bleak ending. Um, but it also left me feeling kind of hopeful because it reminded me that things could be so much worse. Like there are scenes where they have ration cards and they have to go to the grocery store or they have to go to the um, bakery to get bread. But, um, you know, they're constantly struggling to get food. There's no, there's never enough food. They're eating like cabbage soup in certain scenes. And it's like, Oh yeah, I had a hard time finding bread at the store, but like I just had to go to like three or four stores before I found it. And, you know, I don't, I'm having a hard time finding toilet paper and things like that. And it sucks being stuck at home, but at least I don't have a curfew where I'm trapped in my home. And, you know, if I go out on the streets at night, I am risking my life. Um, it just kind of put things into perspective for me that things could be so much worse. Um, and it's a beautiful film. It's, it's kind of weird because basically the whole Italian neorealist movement was this film started as a documentary um, and was kind of filmed in secret, basically just scrounging short ends of film stock to put it together because it was filmed in Italy after just after World War II ended, so it was kind of devastated already, and it has this real documentary kind of quality to it. Um, and I'm rambling again. Oh, that's um, okay. That happens. <clears throat> We've just been going late. for a while, and <clears throat> my my brain is starting to shut down. With with these with these films, basically, they um, Brecho Rossellini got non professional actors. Um, his kind of mantra for the film was if I ever film a beautiful shot, I will cut it. Like he wanted to portray what it was actually like to live in Italy at this time. Um, and it's, it's, it, I expected it to be kind of a slower film that was going to be much more like moral philosophizing and that kind of stuff. There's a, um, it gets into a lot of kind of like the morality of war and, you know, why we need to stand up and is it okay to like, if we're killing them, are we any better than them and that kind of stuff. But, um, anywho, I just think it was, it was a, it was an interesting film to watch, um, after the great dictator because they're doing very similar things. Like there's a scene at the very beginning where there's a resistance fighter. who's hiding out on some rooftops, which is something that the Jewish barber does in the great dictator. And, it's just kind of taking a more realistic version of that. Um, and it left me like in tears by the end of the film. There's this um, priest in the film who is like working with these kind of displaced um, children during the war. And these children are also freedom fighters. Like they also like go out and use these tunnels to bomb um, Nazis in secret at night. And their parents like, basically beat them whenever they find out about it because it's like you're risking your life to go out there and fight against them. But meanwhile, their parents are doing the exact same thing. Like it's just, I don't know. It's an, it's an incredible film. I really had a good time with good time. is not the right word. I really admire the hell out of the movie. Um, And it has this scene at the end that involves um, one of the people being captured and tortured. That is so gut wrenching and brutal you know, you mentioned that in The Outlaw, there's a scene where somebody gets their ear shot off. There's a scene where it literally shows a person being set on fire and, like, burning his flesh off and, like, cutting him. And it was, it really shocked me. Like, it still feels shocking and just brutal to this day. And yeah. um, 
Anywho, <clears throat> I'm going on and on. Well, I, I think the... And, point, but I wanted to talk about it at least because it's... I feel like it's an important film and it's a very influential film, especially on people like Martin Scorsese and a lot of those like new Hollywood directors of the 70s um, were very heavily inspired by this kind of more realistic take on filmmaking. Yeah, and I think that that's actually um, probably a really good one to end on just in terms of bringing back some of that theme of... Man, the 30s and 40s were rough and sucked and were dark. And like looking at um, looking at the movies that I've seen, uh, the movies that I've seen from the 40s, and I'll just go ahead and list all of them out because eh, why not? Uh, so all of the movies from the 40s that I have logged on Letterboxd, including the ones that I've seen prior to this past month, were Casablanca, It's a Wonderful Life, Fantasia, Pinocchio, Bambi, Dumbo, The Great Dictator, Grapes of Wrath, The Stranger, The Wolfman, Arsenic and Old Lace, Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula, The Marx Brothers, A Night in Casablanca, and The Outlaw. And in looking at those, not counting The Marx Brothers, um, like all of the movies were just so dark like even the kids movies with dumbo where he gets separated from his mom and essentially gets sold into slavery and only finds freedom when he gets drunk and bambi which i mean everyone knows in bambi where it starts out with bambi's mom dying and we already talked about pinocchio so like even the children's movies were so dark to the point where some of the brightest and most lighthearted and fun movies that I watched were the horror movies. Yeah. Yes. They were still dark and yes, there were still lots of things about them that can be terrifying. And yes, at the time they were probably much more terrifying than they are now because, you know, viewing things through a different lens, but like watching the rest of the movies, it's just like, I, I need a horror movie as an escape from just how depressing some of these other movies were and oh mm. like i i watched the grapes of wrath and i think fargo in the same night and the grapes of wrath <laughs> is just oh it's, it's so pretty brutal movie, it, is, yeah. it is rough like i i, I knew that it wasn't going to be a happy movie but i didn't expect it to have the emotional toll on me that it did to the point where watching fargo was a much brighter and happier movie and yes it's a coen brothers dry comedy but still it was like i it shouldn't be this fun like Mm. (laughs) movies that are this dark should not be fun but in comparison to just how terrible things were they are and yeah and it is it is weird that like i was kind of there was a certain part of me where I was like, man, looking at all the 40s movies that I had, I was like, man, this is going to be a depressing month. Like, it's all going to be very dark and and stuff. And like, even with something like Rome Open City, I'm so glad that I watched it because I feel like there's something so that I normally don't like to watch depressing movies, but sometimes they're exactly what you need whenever you are depressed. Yes. Like, I mean, like, it's like you, like you can kind of empathize with them and it's nice to feel like you're not alone, but also because movies always deal in extremes and are always so much more dramatic than anything that could ever be happening in, at least in my life. I don't know about your life, but, um, but it, like, it just really, it's comforting in a way to just know like, yeah, things are bad, it, but they could be so much worse. And they, 
yeah, it helps to ground you in a I should be weirdly grateful. uplifting. Yeah, like yeah. I'm I'm grateful for these other things, you know, like so like even with citizen Kane, um, you know, like sometimes there's frustration with, Oh man, you know, is, is the podcast ever going to turn into like a major thing, you know, or mm. am I ever going to be whatever? But then it's like, well, wait a second. I also have like a wife and kids that love me. So I'm not pushing them away. And huh? Yeah. Even if this never turns into anything beyond what it currently is, who cares? As opposed to Citizen Kane, who was so driven by, I must have this and this and this and this, that he drove away anyone who potentially could have given him the things that he needed. So, so yeah, like movies sometimes. Oh, yeah. That was the thing I was wanting to mention with Great Dictator. There's a scene, I'm just really quick. There's a scene where Hinkle is trying to secure a loan. From uh, from Napoloni, the the Italian, um, not Italian. I can't remember what the country is that he's from. Sure. Anyway, he's trying to secure a loan, um, but he finds out that the person he's trying to get the loan from is Jewish. So he stops persecuting the Jews for a brief period of time in <laughs> Tomania. And it's crazy because, like, once he stops doing it, they immediately start loving him. Yeah. Like, at one point, the Jewish barber is off with... Um, with uh, the lady who uh, lives next door to him and they're going off on a date and they walk up to a stand that has like, we love Hinkle buttons or something to that effect. And they're like, Oh yeah, I'll buy one of those. And then as soon as they start to buy it, like um, they hear the, the Gestapo people or whatever are about to come into town and that Hinkle is basically his loan either came through. I can't remember. It's been forever since I watched it. His loan came through or it fell through or something. And he's like, okay, we can go back to persecuting them, them again. And so they hear like something horrible that Hinkle has done. And then he immediately just kind of like puts the button back. And it's just, it's like so weird to think about like, that's how people are when it comes to world leaders. Like we can be so easily forgiving or at least just have a short memory of things overall like if he would have just stopped what he was doing, then the people would have loved him the way that he wanted them to, rather than trying to force people to love him or because that's kind of what he's doing outside of, you know, trying to murder all the Jews, right? (laughs) (laughs) at least in that film. Um, But yeah, so much of it comes from like just these like authoritarian people just comes from a deep seated insecurity is what almost all of it kind of boils down to in a way, which is, fascinating and yeah and 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 sometimes watching how terrible things can be make it better and then Mm. unfortunately sometimes watching how terrible things can be it feels a little bit too real and a little too just like i don't want real life to turn into that right Mm. that's why that we have to keep doing what we can to actually try to make some sort of positive impact and yeah, uh, I and if all us films, movies. Yeah, and if all us films watch horror movies. Well, and like that's one of the things that I love so much about cinema. And we'll uh, we'll end on this because uh, yeah. this kind of leads into the fifties um, episode of. I I think that it's just I I've always found it fascinating that movies um, sort of simultaneously. <clears throat> excuse me serve two roles of um holding up a a mirror to society 
and showing you this is how things are or this is how things could be or even if it's an exaggeration you know this is an extreme version to get you to think about what things are but movies on some level either hold up a mirror to society or provide escapism to try to not think so much about it. And there's there's always going to be some overlap. Like sometimes <clears throat> things are so extreme uh, in, in movies to try to give you some sort of escape. Other times movies that are escapism still kind of sneak in things that uh, are still a little bit too relevant. Um, <clears throat> but I've just always found that interesting. And I, I feel like that is especially present in the 40s just because of how dark everything was and how somber so many movies were. And Mm. then in the fifties where you start getting just giant monster movies and like, yes, they are still relevant and they still uh, relate to some of the fears of society and, you know, things like uh, fear of nuclear fallout and like, there's still heavy themes that you get. And I've not watched any of the 50s movies yet, um, mm-hmm. so this is just kind of speaking from what I assume and from what I remember from 50s movies, but, you know, like right. you start getting into, like, some of the beach movies and uh, some of the giant monsters, and it's almost like things were so dark that you almost have to get some of that escapism, and yeah, then by the time you hit the, you know, late 70s early 80s it's almost like there's been too much escapism <sighs> vietnam yeah, it's, it's, really it's, sucks going through the same cycles over and over again <laughs> yeah it's like things have been too bright don't you see how bad vietnam is like you need to be re-exposed to the greediness of life mm. and yeah it's it, it's just very interesting and I'm trying to decide where movies are in in 2020. I don't know if we're in the middle of a (laughs) life sucks and you need to have some sort of escapism or if we're in the middle of a life sucks, but y'all aren't paying attention to like, you know, real news. So maybe if we show you extreme versions of things, you might actually pay a little bit more attention. Hmm. And I don't know. I, I I don't know what the current state of cinema is uh, in terms of that specific cycle. I know. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I can't wait for the 50s because it'll get into – I can't wait to start talking. You get a little bit of it in the 40s, but like with uh, communism and the Red Scare and all of that, like that, the late 40s is whenever the House on American Activities Committee was formed and when people like Charlie Chaplin were blacklisted and – left the country, well, forced out of the country. And man, there's a fantastic podcast I have to mention briefly that um, called You Must Remember This mm-hmm. by Karina Longworth and that has like true Hollywood stories from classic Hollywood that I listened to about Charlie Chaplin and the making of The Great Dictator and like how it was used as propaganda in the United States and banned in other places and, and basically how that led in some ways to Charlie Chaplin being labeled a communist and being like a huge target for um, J. Edgar Hoover and it's fascinating, but I can't wait to see kind of how that bleeds into the fifties. Cause I think that's going to be a bit more prominent with fifties films. Yeah. Um, I am also, uh, I'm not sure what decade <laughs> they start in all of the movies that I have in my collection, but I am looking forward to getting into Kung Fu movies. Yeah. That's going to be 
uh, 60s, 70s probably mostly, but yeah, 60s. I, like I, I've uh, when I was going through and trying to separate out some of the movies that I needed to watch soon, I also pulled out like two boxes worth of kung fu movies. Just like you know what, I I miss not doing kung fu brewery this year. So <laughs> yeah. uh, I really want to watch some Kung Fu movies. So those are going to be some of my uh, in-betweener movies in the next few weeks. Not that people nice. care, but whatever. All right, Eric, where do you want people to find you? You can find me on Twitter at the Chimerican, um, and some other places, Instagram <laughs> at Chimerican Reviews. And on um, Letterboxd. There, J-A-Y. And you can find me on Letterboxd at The Gargoyle. And uh, you can follow the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Video Monster Pod. And if you enjoyed this very long rambling about uh, movies from the 40s and uh, like hearing our thoughts on these, then subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify. I don't know where all we are. We're out there. Just go to wherever you get your podcasts and do a search for Video Monsters and um yeah if you like what you hear leave some feedback leave some comments let us know what movies you want us to cover uh we actually got a request recently to cover a found footage movie that uh that we'll be covering i don't don't know sometime soon um and i am looking forward to it because i do not love found footage movies and (laughs) i i am actually looking forward to this one just based off of the trailer i i am hoping that I'm hoping that what comes across in the trailer is what the movie is actually going to be, but mm-hmm. it feels like it is more of uh, poking fun at found footage style movies uh, in in a smart way. And I hope that I am not wrong about that because uh, I just hope I'm not wrong about that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, if there's something that you want us to review, let us know. And again, but, but like, subscribe, follow, all all those things. Leave reviews, good reviews. Not bad reviews. Preferably. <laughs> Please, just the good reviews. Um, all right. If you, have, if you have criticism, just say it to our faces. <laughs> or, you know, our Twitter handles, whatever. Exactly. If you're going to be mean, um, don't. It's better to be nice. Be a nice person. Don't, don't be mean. Yeah, this is the part where we should we should just... You should just play the speech from the end of The Great Dictator at the end of this. You know, I don't think that I can get away with playing that much of a thing. It's like five minutes long. Yeah. (laughs) I can play like five seconds worth of it. Uh, All right. That's been it for this episode of Video Monsters. I'm Nathan. And I'm Eric. And remember, kids, when you do a podcast, uh, especially one through virtual messaging, remember to pay attention so that you know your cue to do your own outro. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And, I'm falling asleep over here a little bit. God, me too. And remember, kids, um, be nice to people. I know that that's kind of been our driving theme in most of our closings <clears throat> and episodes lately. But it's because the, wor- the world, the world kind of sucks right now. Um, and people need love and that does not mean to break the law and that doesn't mean to put other people in danger. It means respect other people. And even if you don't always agree with them, don't be a dick. 
That's that, that's our new tagline. Unless Video monsters, a, don't um, be a dick. Don't, don't be a dick. Yeah. Um, however, I would recommend that um, you definitely try to stay at home. Oh yeah, no, like that was part of the like, don't put to, other people in and, danger. Is <laughs> stay at home. Well, and you know, just maybe if you have a governor who happens to think that it's okay to open up restaurants and things, maybe don't listen to that governor. Look, just, just be just because the beaches are open. Just because the beaches are open does not mean that Jaws is not in the water. Like, <laughs> if if anything, this is just a, it's just a very tiny invisible Jaws. It's a tiny invisible Jaws that's only going to be passed around to more people now that things are open. Um, creating more and more tiny invisible sharks. It's that sounds terrifying and probably like a movie that Asylum would make. Um, Yeah, just be be kind to other people. Respect other people. If you're going to be out in public, try to only do it if you absolutely have to. We understand the economic toll that it's taking. We are very, very, very uh, empathetic to that. And like, we understand. And also... Like people need to not die, so yeah, it's a tricky balance. I know. <laughs> yeah, I should stop there before this turns into a late night political podcast where I say things <laughs> that uh, people probably don't care to hear when they are listening to a movie podcast. But yep. uh, yeah, um, go to the Chat Film Fest virtual Chattanooga virtual film fest virtual Chattanooga film fest you know I don't know the uh, the the proper title to that to the virtual Chattanooga film fest it's what I'm gonna go with uh, be sure to attend that yep. once the official dates are announced again they're going sometime with mid-may so in the next couple of weeks that's gonna be happening and in our next few episodes obviously we'll be providing as many updates as we have and the next episode we're gonna get back to uh, talking about pandemic movies of some sort Yes, we are. All right. This has been... Uh, I understanding. This, this has probably been too long of an outro for our outro music to fully play. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're going to go now. Okay, bye. You have finally seen the greatest movie ever made, right? I have finally seen the greatest movie ever made. Uh, it was a few weeks ago when I watched the 1998 version of Godzilla. And Roland Emmerich is a genius.